he said, oh, we can be a part of that. We can make sure you get your treatment. He said, I know what you like. You can do that job. And I was, it knocked me because I didn't expect that response. Well, you were expecting security clearance to be yanked. Yeah, everything. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd either be on leave. Well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, the Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Today's episode deals with serious and adult topics which are not suitable for children. After a 34-year distinguished career, today's guest retired from the Australian Federal Police in 2019 at the rank of Commander. His Federal Policing career was diverse, including postings to LA and Washington DC as the AFP Liaison Officer. Timor Lees as Mission Commander and Advisor to the Secretary of State for Security, Timorese Government. To Afghanistan as Mission Commander and Deputy Head of the International Police Coordination Board. He's also an accomplished sportsman, best known for his feats of strength, holding the title of Australia's Strongest Man. After publicly coming forward during his career with his own post-traumatic stress injury, since retiring, he devotes his time to increasing services for better mental health. Episode 67, Grant Edwards. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. I think it's the one time of the year that you can fully, uh, unashamedly eat as much chocolate as you can and not feel any, any guilt for it. I know it's it's almost like the indulgence season. <laughs> it is. Well, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know whether or not with your. I mean, you've got a strongman background, so I don't know whether or not you you would partake as much as I would. But oh. you're probably a lot more healthier than I am. Oh, uh, look! But I tell you, <laughs> chocolate is my Achilles heel, and is it? yeah, and I've got to be careful on how much how much I eat because <laughs> I, I can overeat with it. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, I was doing a little bit of a little bit of research, and I was saying to you yet uh, the other day that I don't like to research the guests too much because it can stunt the conversation. But I did do a little bit of research on you. Probably good that I didn't do it before we spoke because I probably would have um, freaked out about how <laughs> how senior you are in the AFP. But um, you've had a very interesting career from sort of strongman to to AFP, and like it's just. I, I watched the Australian Story episode on you, and I was sort of like, you know, wow, like this is an incredible human being that I'm about to about to interview. Tell me about your early days because you had a very, um, I mean, you grew up in the '70s, so very different times and a, and and a challenging childhood. Absolutely, and it, yeah, I get asked that question a lot, and it's funny for me because growing up during that period, to me, it was all normal. It was quite normal to have a, a father who had declared his homosexuality, mm. uh, and it was quite normal to be, I guess, in a dysfunctional family to some degree. But it, what wasn't normal is I was myself and my sister were back in the sixties and seventies part of a, a single parent family, and that just didn't occur back then. I mean, it was an absolute oddity. So uh, your dad left after he declared that he was gay. 
He did. He did. Okay. And I was very young. Uh, I would have been a- around six or seven years mm. old. Uh, and but brave him, for him though, brave for him to do that because it was illegal still in those days. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. He could, he could have been arrested um, well into the to the seventies um, mm. for that. But he'd um, he'd suffered uh, terribly. I mean, he'd been um, abused uh, when he was a young boy in the um, in his local scout group. Mm. And in those days, you, you didn't come forward. I mean, his his father, my grandfather, uh, was a very typical. But, you know, Australian masculine male. He'd um, he'd fought in the war. He was a bloke's bloke. Mm. Um, all my father's brothers were the same, and um, and my dad felt really uh, at. I guess he was being pulled uh, two different ways, and he thought the way to overcome that was to uh, get himself into a um, you know into a normal relationship. And he, my, I remember my mother used to saying, you know, he was the catch. He was um, always well dressed, well presented, um, smelt good. He could dance, he could cook, he could do all those kind of things, and uh, and she thought she'd you know got the catch of her life um, when they met and when they married. But of course, it soon unravelled because he couldn't um, he couldn't control what was happening to him. And to his defence, he tried many many therapies. He, he mm. went as far as the Chelmsford therapy, where they stick. The uh, brain uh, stick nodes oh, in the brain goodness. and electrically shock him. And I, I remember, you know, going to see him. He was actually he put himself into what was called back then a mental asylum because that was what he was being told by by the mainstream public that he had a he had a problem, he had an issue, and it needed to be somehow extracted out of his body. Mm, awful. Mm. So, so your mum was aware of this was going on. Like he had, she told wasn't her. A- no, she she didn't know up until the day that that he disclosed to her, and that that's what broke the marriage. Right. So, how come yeah. you were going into the uh, well, as you put it, the asylum? Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, didn't sort of step the timeline. That was after they'd separate. After, okay. after they'd separated, and um, so he was still really trying to. He was, okay. yeah, because he he thought he was um, an oddity, and and mm. when, when you get into these situations where you have something going on. I know it's quite similar for me with my issues. You, you think that you're the only one going through it mm. uh, and you do whatever you can to try and defeat that. But he wasn't the only one. There were, As he found out later, there were many men back in those days. And uh, completely normal now mm. we know, you know. So it's just different times and how awful for him. Yes. But also awful for you to, to grow up with what was back then such a stigma as well in regards to the single parent and then also mm-hmm. your dad. I'm surprised that he openly – well, how did it get out into public that he was gay? Because I would have thought considering it was illegal back then, it would have tried to keep that under wraps. Mm. He he did his best uh, yeah. to hide it, but like in any community, and we were living in the western suburbs of Sydney at that time, um, people talk mm. and people make things up. Uh, and if there's not an answer, you know they'll they'll fill the void with themselves. Mud sticks. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was assumed. And I, I, I think, although I, I never really knew it, my, my mother was terribly hurt by that, and uh, and there was some vindictiveness in regard to that. So I, although she never told me, I, I would say that she's probably confided or told people, and then it, then it's just got out through the, through the network um, that that he was gay. Yeah. You got uh, horrendously bullied at school because of uh, because of your dad. 
you're very open about the fact that your mum then turned to alcohol um, as a as a um, crutch. Did she ever sort of recover from that and remarry? No, no, she didn't start drinking till she was 28, and um, the the alcoholism had become so severe by by the age of 46, um, she died because of renal failure, mm. uh, and uh, she she never recovered. She'd had relationships, uh, and most of them were quite poor. Uh, they were uh, the complete opposite of my father in terms of you know their masculinity, uh, and they mm. were they were mainly drinkers as well. So mm. there was a lot of um, uh, when I say violence, not to the degree of uh, uh, um, harmful violence, but there, there, there was you know, violence in in the family, uh, and usually alcohol fueled, and that was um, that was you know part of my growing up, where I was trying to shield my my younger sister of that, and her her father, my other grandfather, uh, he, he had a uh, had a drinking problem as well, but he he actually. Uh, wanted to take, you know, vindictive matters into his own hands with my father. So um, I recall one time when he came over to the apartment where we were living, he brought his gun with him. Jesus. And, um, yeah, I had to, I had to I grabbed my sister and we were able to escape and get out and go down and call a friend uh, with things like that. Uh, but, again, that was all alcohol-fueled, uh, you know, violence. And, and, again, in those days, anyone that was not – didn't fit into that almost white, homogenous, mm. normal framework, mm. you know, was considered an outsider. Did you keep in contact once your dad left that the family unit? Did you keep in contact yes. with him? You did. Yes, we, we did. Yeah, not not a lot. I mean, uh, once a month we would have to go over and and, and stay at his place. Uh, but I, my sister, connected really well with my dad because they had similar likes, you mm. know, dancing, cooking things. Um, but my poor old dad, he he wouldn't have known you know the front end of a football. Um, mm. I remember he took me out fishing once, and we, we, it. It stopped really quickly because um, he hooked me, um, and we had to go back. Had to get treatment, you know. But he tried, he tried. Yeah. But we we just didn't um, we didn't have that connection. But we still had the love. Mm. Yeah. When did you get into strongman? Was it prior to the a- uh, AFP, or was it uh, after? No, it was it was after. So I joined the AFP in nineteen eighty five. Why did you join? What was the catalyst for you joining? <laughs> that. My grandmother, my mother's mother, had her tea leaves read once and she was told that <laughs> oh she would have... Oh, my God, this is the best start of why you started your career. Tea leaves, I yeah. love it. Yeah, and she was told that she would have three three sons in the police. Well, she had her own son mm. and then she had her stepson uh, uh, in, in, that, that are in the police. So she always said to me, you're logically the third. Um, <laughs> but But I had always wanted to do that. Yeah. I, you know, I'd always wanted to to, to, to join the police. But and, why uh, AFP? Why not standard police? Because there's a, there, for those that don't know, maybe you need to explain the difference between the two because it's very different to being a beat cop in – you were in New South Wales at the time, weren't you? Yes. New South Wales. yes. Yeah, so yes. New South Wales copper compared to AFP. Mm. Yeah, it, it is and mm. still is. And uh, the, the main difference is that the um, each of the, the state jurisdictions mm. um, have their own police that look after that area. So they look after all the traditional crimes uh, that, you know, you see on, on television, you know. You, but the AFP, uh, it, although there's a component of that, so they do that within the ACT and also mm. a couple of islands. Um, 
on Christmas Island, Cocos Keeling Island, uh, used to in Norfolk Island. But ostensibly, the majority of the AFP are positioned around Australia to police the Commonwealth, the federal laws. So where people would probably be most familiar with the AFP now would be at the police, at the airport. They police the airports. They're all the guys in uniform at the airports. But mostly... Um, transnational drug trafficking, organised crime, counter-terrorism, um, you know, uh, child exploitation overseas. So the AFP have laws where they can actually uh, arrest Australians that commit offences against children overseas. And and there's a whole lot of other uh, sort of different things um, that come within that. The protection of, um, of, of high-value dignities like the Prime Minister and international dig dignitaries. And the AFP also has uh, the uh, responsibility for helping in peacekeeping uh, overseas, in, in nation-building, uh, such as like in Afghanistan and East Timor where yeah, I, I went. We'll get into that later. I was surprised yeah. about that. I thought that that would have been solely a military responsibility. So we'll, we'll touch on that later. I don't sure. want to skip forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but why? How did you sort of come across the AFP compared to the New South Wales Police? Well, I, I applied for New South Wales Police. In fact, um, when I left school, I, I uh, my, my high school certificate or the leaving the certificate was <laughs> was pretty abysmal uh, in terms of what I, what my. Uh, where my limitations were. Actually, no, they, <laughs> they were all limitations. There were no positives. Uh, so I had to I had to sort of re rethink. Well, I, I'd applied for the New South Wales Police when they had cadets. Right. So you used to have police cadets when you were 16 yeah. years old. So I applied, but they, the year that I turned 16, they ceased that. Oh, no. Yeah, and then uh, academically-wise, uh, it um, between the time I was 16 and 18, all as they required is successful completion of the, the high school certificate, which I did. But the year that I completed it, they put a band range in where you had to get, you know, within the... the, the Some set marks. A set mark. But what... what um, so I applied for the New South Wales Police. I saw an advertisement in the paper for the... The, um, the Australian Federal Police. I applied for the Northern Territory Police. I also applied for New South Wales Fire Brigade. Uh, but uh, what was the, um, the, the I guess, the, the kicker for me with the New South Wales Police is that they informed me that I was that I was overweight and that I wouldn't be suitable for the police. And I'm like, overweight? You know, I was, I guess, a young um, elite athlete. I mean, at the time, I'd represented mm. Australia in track and field and things. And I didn't see myself as, as overweight, but that whole obesity thing has plagued me all my life. Um, it even was the, um, the the element that the AFP had initially said, "Well, you've got to lose weight before before you you come and join." And they, I was, I'm about six foot four in the old scale, mm. and around that time, uh, I was about 107 or 108 kilos, and they wanted that's me not heavy for six four. No, no, but they they were going off an old antiquated. Oh height to weight ratio. That's so they being poly. Yeah, they wanted to be. They wanted to be down to ninety four kilos. Oh my goodness, you would have been skin and bones. Well, I was ninety four kilos when I think I was about um, fourteen, fifteen. Mm. Um, so, uh, and and the New South Wales Police, uh, you know, every time I'd match one of the the elements that they asked me to to um, to to do, I'd, I'd get it, and then there'd be something else and something else. But I got the sense they didn't want me. Uh, and then, as it turned but out, they're regretting that decision now. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Um, so then, the AFP came, um, 
came and I got through everything. And all as they said to me was, you need to lose the weight. And once you lose that weight, you're good. And initially I went, you're kidding me. No. Um, but I got to the stage where I wasn't hearing from anybody else. Uh, you know, all well, the processes take so long. Well, in those days, they took so long mm. um, to go through. And um, I, I remember uh, the... Uh, the recruiting officer who's who's now a good friend of mine actually he said to me you know lose the weight and then um we'll we'll bring you down and get you medically done and, and you're good and i remember uh you know being bored out of my mind i was doing jobs here and there and everywhere and i thought you know what i'm just going to ring him up and tell him i've lost the weight and i did uh not really <laughs> thinking through the process and uh and, i can and, see where this is going oh uh, yeah and <laughs> And Ed, the guy that, I, that who was the senior sergeant, he said, "Great." He goes, um, "When are you available to um, to come into town and have a um, have a medical, and we'll just get that verified by the doctor?" And I've <laughs> I've thought, "Holy shit! Oh dear! I've just told my first lie. I'm not even in the police." Ah. Did you stand on the scale with one leg off? <laughs> no, no. The, the story was that. Um, so I, I see. I'm the kind of personality when I do something, I do it at 100 miles an hour. So. I hung up the phone and I started to um, – because I'd, I'd done some work as a gym instructor and in those days you didn't need qualifications, but I was I was reasonably uh, aware of what I needed to do. So I, I started halving my meals and halving my meals and halving my meals. And I, I said, there, look, I can't come down straight away. Give me about six weeks and I'll, um, um, I'll be able to come down because I've got work and things like that. And he understood that. So we penciled it in date six weeks later. And, so that's like um, ten, nearly 10 kilos in six weeks. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah and, I, and, and I pretty much did it. I'd, I'd gotten to the stage where I was I fasted for almost six days just on fluid diet. Jeez. And then um, my mother was suffering high blood pressure and she had the um, – Not medically recommended, everybody. No, no, no. Please don't do this at home, <laughs> as they say. <laughs> uh, my mother had the, uh, the diuretics and I remember leaving home. It was about an hour and a half train trip into – into the city, and I took a couple of a diuretics, which wasn't a good idea uh, for a number of reasons. Because I got on the train and I had nowhere to, <laughs> so I hung on and I hung on and I, I eventually got into town and I, I gave myself enough time and I was so dehydrated and I was fatigued and I had a headache. And um, for those, if any anyone's listening in Sydney, um, at the museum station, uh, there's a uh, they have used to have a large big chess set where people would sit and you know play the chess and there were these old old chaps that go and play it every day and there was a toilet there and I remember racing to the toilet trying not to you know pee my pants <laughs> and just about every fluid every ounce of fluid I had in my body was was um came out and expelled. then I went expelled thank you that's the word <laughs> I was looking for <laughs> and uh and, and I went around and sat with those guys for about three quarters of an hour before I had to walk down to the uh to the uh to the office where, where I met the Commonwealth Medical Officer, and that was the hardest walk I'd ever done. I was so dizzy, and I, you know, I was I know I was trying to sweat and I couldn't sweat. I'd actually that's when old, you know you're really dehydrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I put the old two. They had a weighing machine there, and I put the the old two cent piece in in those days, and a weight come up, and it it said well it was in stone and pounds, so um, it said that I. Um, I was about 96 kilos and I'm like, I'm still kilo, two kilos over. My God. So I walked around and around and around trying to whatever else I could get out. Finally went to the, um, to the medical office and I got on, got on the lift and got upstairs and 
lady said, oh, you were right there, young fella. You looked a bit pale. Would you like me to get water? And I'm like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And I sat there and waited for the doctor. And it was about, about one o'clock in the afternoon. And the doctor came in. And, um, oh, that's right. Now, she, she said to me, hi, the doctor might be running a bit late. He's, um, he was a former Air Force doctor. He said, he's, he's out at a reunion lunch, but he'll be back shortly. And I went, oh, okay. So I didn't mind. I was sitting down in an air-conditioned room. Anyway, he walked in. Uh, went into his office. He called me and he goes, right, big fella. He said, what are you here for? And I said, oh, sir, I've got to, um, I've got to show you I had to lose weight. He goes, oh, you're a strapping lad. He said, you don't need to lose weight. He said, what did they tell you that you had to be? And I said, oh, 94 kilos. He goes, oh, that is a, that's a silly antiquated rule. He said, jump on the scales. Anyway, he, he, I jumped on the scales and I, I saw that I was like 95.9 and I wow. thought I'm not going to make this. And uh, in the meantime, he's, ferreting around in his jacket and he's looked in his briefcase and he's checking his pants and he goes god dang it he goes i think i've left my glasses um back at the uh at the air force club and i went oh dear he goes what do you weigh and in 94 that, well i thought oh what do i do i've already told one i went i went oh i'm a little over i'm 95 he goes oh i'm happy with that that's not a problem he said i'll i'll sign off on that then I looked as he bent over and his glasses were stand, sitting on his head. Bless him. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I'm not gonna, even going to tell him. Um, so I said 95. And then, yeah, um, I, I was away. I, I got downstairs, went straight to the nearest McDonald's, hoofed down a, a burger <laughs> and a Coke. And then about 15 minutes later, you could imagine what happened. It all came back up. Yeah. So please, anyone listening, I wouldn't, adv- I, I wouldn't advocate that. Um, so you got in. You I got, got in. in. I got, in. got in. in. Yes. Yeah. Where? What was your first? They referred to as postings. I don't know what the technical yeah. term is yet. Yeah, they're, they're essentially postings. Yes. So, what was your first um, posting within the AFP? So, after I did my initial training in Canberra, I, I got posted to Sydney, which mm-hmm. is outside of the ACT, is the the largest office um, in um, for the, for the AFP because of the volume of work uh, that happens there. And in those days, the uh, the headquarters was in Redfern. Uh, oh. Not in the city, yeah. and and that was an interesting, yeah, <laughs> a very interesting place. Um, <laughs> particularly so, back then as well. I mean, it is yes. now, but particularly back then. Yeah, well, we were we were within stone's throw of um, of the the streets where they used to do the riots and things like that, and um, and they knew who we were um, and what we did. Uh, but but I was uh, working in New South Wales and and in Sydney, and I remember my uncle saying, you know, why did you why do you want a jaw to join a guarding what do you want to be a guard and I said well actually they're not a guard they do a lot more than that yeah um but it was a good way to I guess cut my teeth because you know we were working on significant drug seizures um I started off doing in those days what was called check fraud I know there's young people these days that don't even know what a check is um but where if you can stuff yeah yeah where the unemployed would get a check every week sent to the addresses and and scrupulous people would go around and steal them and then forge them and add on them and things like that uh that the AFP no longer does that but that was a good way of getting in and um, get, you know, honing your skills to be able to talk to people and interview people. Did you have a choice of what sort of department? I'm imagining that you probably don't your first posting, but after that, do you sort of have a choice in regards to where you go? Uh, yes and no. I mean, initially for the first four months, you go through all the major areas uh, and then you put in a preference um, li- list two or three of where you want to go. And it's really the luck of the draw as to mm. whether you get that or not. You might get one, you might get two, you might get three. Um, so I, I, I was lucky. I got my, my preferred one, which which was the 
the, the drug unit which did all the the drug work um, coming in from overseas, which was um, really interesting, and I really enjoyed it. How long were you in that unit for? Um, I was on and off. I'd probably spent about six years um, in that unit in do- doing different different types of work. Uh, mm. from really short-term, what we used to call short-term seizures, where people that, say, come in through the airport with carrying carrying drugs um, to the, the long extended operations where you're working on intelligence in- information and you're trying to uh, really work towards the, the higher-level syndicates. Where did you move after you left that unit? Uh, I went to... Um, we had what was called an organised crime unit uh, mm. throughout the country. So it was a covert unit in another premises in Sydney. And the, the idea of the um, the organised crime unit was to be self-sufficient and to be able to do uh, really uh, high, high intense investigations. And they could be investigations um, on anything. Um, I mean, we did one. We did one investigation, and this is a while ago. But one of our assistant commissioners was assassinated in Canberra. Oh and my goodness! It, it was a. The suggestion was that it was the um, attack the, the mafia had assassinated him. So, you know, we were working on that in conjunction with the colleagues that were working on it in Canberra and things like that, right through to to the drug trafficking. Um, I, I did I did some work on Aung San Rikyo, who were the um, the uh, the Japanese group that did the sarin gas. Um, attack uh, because they'd actually come to Australia and, and trained uh, before they did that. Oh my uh, goodness. Which a lot of people don't know. No. Uh, so, yeah, it was very, very broad in terms of the work that you did. So, when you're saying covert, were you undercover or did you were you managing people that were undercover? No, we, we, we were all covert. So, covert basically, um, the, the distinction between covert and undercover, undercover is when you actually go in to it or you present in, with an assumed identity, uh, complete backstop, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, you are presenting yourself as whatever your backstory is. So it could be a crook, it could be a freight merchant, it could be anything. Covert means that we're in a, a, a non-identifiable building mm. um, and our cars were non-identifiable because we did our own surveillance and we, we probably looked like undercover. But you know, for the for the law enforcement people out there, they they always distinguish between undercover and covert. Um, we the lay person like me, I just person. think it's all you know. <laughs> so, yeah. what's the difference between where is the jurisdiction? If you're doing that and you're dealing with, so you mentioned the sarin gas situation, which was in Japan, wasn't it? They released it in Japan. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where does the distinction between you for the AFP? investigating that and ASIO? Right. So ASIO are uh, uh, intelligence-based. So they work on the intelligence aspect of it. Um, they, they don't have powers of arrest. So they, they can't arrest somebody. But they Well, back then they couldn't. They, you can detain now. Where So the, the distinction line is criminality. So, right. And, and that's how um, the AFP still works today in terms of if there's a criminal element to it, you know, we become, they, I'm no longer we, they become involved. If there's no criminal element, that would stay with what we call the intelligence services, so like ASIO, ACES, all those uh, ones where they, they build up the intelligence. Hang on. They, what was the other one that you said, ACES? ACES, yeah. What's ACES? Um, ACES, ASIO is the domestic um, yeah. intelligence. ACES is the international um, okay. one. So when I interviewed the ASIO 
XAZO lady on the podcast, mm-hmm. she mentioned that. She's like, just Google it. And I didn't Google it because I didn't want to end up on some bloody watch list. Um, <laughs> but I'd never, I'd never heard of ACES. It's not like, mm. okay, you hear of MI6, which I'm assuming it would be the equivalent of. Correct. Um, but I'd never heard of them. Like you hear of ASIO, but mm. who yeah. the hell's bloody ACES? ASIS are, are, are probably ASIO. Well, ASIO wouldn't like me to say this, but uh, ASIS are. All ASIO people will <laughs> cover your ears. <laughs> um, ASIS predominantly work in the international environment. So I, I guess for lame terms, they're the spies that live and operate overseas. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas um, ASIO have people that are deployed overseas, uh, but they, um, they work on purely domestic. on domestic issues. Yeah. It sounds also, <laughs> it's so cloak and dagger. I bloody love it. It is. <laughs> Anything where the shoe phone could be, you know, needed. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there's a Maxwell Smart in the wings out there waiting. <laughs> um, okay, so you were you were dealing with this covert. Uh, what was it? Terror? Not ter- was it? What was the name of the unit? The organised crime unit. Organised crime unit. Yeah. How long were you in that unit for? Uh, about two years, because what had happened was the the AFP were going through a restructure and they were going to close down those units. So that was about the length of time um, that I had there. So I, I when I when I saw that that was going to happen. And, and what you tend to do in, in policing is you, you look after yourself. Otherwise, mm. if you let the organisation look after you, God knows where you'll end up. Um, so <laughs> so um, I, I was lucky enough to, um, to to get asked if I wanted to work. We had a, what we call a sub office up in Newcastle. Mm. So I went up, went up and worked in Newcastle for a couple of years as well. What decade was this? Is this in the 90s? Uh, we're in the 90s now, yes. So the organised crime unit was late 80s, early 90s, and then Newcastle was early 90s, yes. What was it like working in a unit like that? Because I would imagine in the 80s, early 90s, so no internet, you're fairly off the grid in regards to what you're doing. I would mm. imagine minimal oversight because you're sort of fairly independent, as you mentioned. Mm. Wow, I just feel like it'd be the good old days, Wild Wild West sort of stuff, you know? Do whatever you want well, well, within, well, the, within the letter of the law. Within the law, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but, I mean, in the organised crime unit, we were very well-resourced uh, mm. and, and there was there was a fair bit of petty jealousy in the organisation. Of course and, there is. And, th- th- I mean, there's politics within politics in Canberra and there's <laughs> politics within politics within the AFP and there were certain, <laughs> at the time, high-level figures at the AFP that didn't like this whole idea of organised crime unit because it meant that they were cut out of the loop because it was t- to be to be effective in terms of maintaining your covert nature and, and maintaining the integrity of what you're doing, um, the less people that knew what you were doing, the better. So there were a number of egos down in Canberra that didn't like that and fought very hard to, um, to make sh- to try and get that changed. And w- we had a very, very good boss for a long time who fought that. But um, when he left and retired, um, we lost the top cover. So basically what happened is they're like, well, we're going to finish this up now. We're going mm. to roll it into the normal day-to-day business, um, which which now I can see having been in you know a, a similar role, not as high as a, a deputy commissioner or et cetera. But I can see the value of that, but I can also see the value of, of um, having standalone specialised units because they become very, very good. Part of the the reason also was that they were, the organisation was also fearful of potential for corruption or bad behaviour. 
Uh, and, and this was just around the time or a bit before the, the Wood Royal Commission started to happen in New South Wales. So, you know, the, the many police, including the AFP, changed their operating systems so that you never stayed in one place too long. So you couldn't build up connections or relationships or get yourself into a situation where, you know, you, you could potentially be compromised. You'll need to sort of very briefly explain what that Royal Commission is because I have a very limited understanding of it. I've sort of heard heard on through people that I've interviewed, but a lot of the listeners won't know what that Royal Commission was for and what the outcome of it was. Yeah, it was a Royal Commission into the into the New South Wales Police. So it was probably uh, one of the, if not the largest Royal Commission ever undertaken into a, an organisation. And mm-hmm. it went for years. Um, the AFP were a part of that in terms of investigating uh, because all investigators were, were bought from around the country. No one from mm. New South Wales was. And there, that was headed by Justice um, Wood, um, a Supreme Court justice in New South Wales. And they were using really innovative techniques and ways and they caught a lot of serving and ex-serving police officers out in terms of their corrupt behaviour, uh, what they were doing, taking money, moving drugs, you know, all, sort, all sorts of things that you hear about now um, uh, around the world, allegedly, what, what police are doing. And it, it sent shockwaves uh, through not only the New South Wales Police, um, but across the law enforcement uh, profession in Australia as well. And I can't remember the statistics now because it's so long ago, but they... Um, you know, they were able to show that there were many, you know, I wouldn't say not many is a wrong word, but there were quite a number of police undertaking um, unethical behaviour. And as a result of that, um, because, and you see it now where we have teams like the joint terrorism teams where you have a multitude of different agencies working together. Back in New South Wales in the day, there was a, um, a joint uh, task force on drug trafficking, and they were a combination of AFP and New South Wales Police. And by virtue of what happened to uh, in the Royal, the Wood Royal Commission in regards to the uh, the uh, police officers working in that unit, some were AFP. There became an inquiry, not a Royal Commission, into the AFP where they looked at AFP involvement. And there were a number of AFP officers whom I worked with and worked for that were also um, uh, lost their jobs because of. Uh, not so much the behaviour, but the fact that they didn't didn't um, do anything about it, and that's where a lot got caught out Turn because of the, mm. the thin blue line and the the cloak and dagger uh, and the culture of the organise you know organisations. The policing culture was very strong, and so people just didn't didn't get themselves involved in it. But unfortunately, um, they were proven to to have knowledge of it. And when you swear your oath, part of your oath is is that you you do bring that to the attention if you if you see any you know unethical corrupt inappropriate behaviour. It'd be very difficult though. I mean, if it's so so, um, and I'm I'm uh, surmising from that from your statement there that it was fairly widespread in regards to the um, New South Wales Police at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, from that Royal Commission. I mean, if you're in an organisation where it's sort of everywhere, it's really hard to bring it to your attention because you're sort of stunting your own career then, aren't you? You're a leper if, if everyone uh, around you is. Yeah, it'd yeah. be so difficult. We see I mean, it today with right, whistleblowers. right, but difficult, yeah. 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 We still see the same today with whistleblowers where they're ostracised, they're bullied, mm. they're, you know, what have you. Um, mm. It was no different 
Um, that, and some would argue it's still the same. I don't think it's it's as bad as what it is, but there's there's definitely a culture there. But um, today is very different. There, there are people. I mean, first of all, you're trained when you join a police um, and educated very much about what happens in terms of your responsibilities, your liabilities, and how to go about reporting unethical behaviour. And the different um, the different um, groups of people that come through and um, now have a, a different process in terms of doing that. They're more more open to um, to reporting that, but it's yeah. still it's it is yeah it's it can be a career and, and uh, it has been a career buster for many. Yes. Yeah. So now you're in this new squad. We're in the '90s. So you're in the new squad sub squad that you went to up to Newcastle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about that. What were you doing up there in the new squad? Well, there was only um, there's only about five of us, and we actually covered uh, the geographic area from Newcastle right up to the border of Queensland. And again, we did anything. I mean, Newcastle at the time, and I think still maybe, um, um, was one of the it's one of the largest ports in the in Australia, uh, even across the world in terms of the movement of material. So it was logical to think that there were criminal syndicates that were were bringing drugs in um, to there. Um, we uh, also were heavily invested in, in fraud. Um, so a lot of the work that we did up there was more the high-end fraud, a lot of tax tax fraud, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, we also had responsibility for the family court up there. So there's a family court in Newcastle. And um, you, you may be, you're probably not young enough, but some of the listeners might be remember the um, the family court bom- bombings back in the 80s. No, do you mean the, not old enough? I hope you meant not old enough. That's not what I young meant. Enough. Did I get that wrong? Sorry. No, <laughs> oh, yes, not, not old enough. I did. You uh, said to me, you said not young uh, enough. I don't remember young. them. I am too young to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i, I got to be careful because I talk about these things and people look at me with a blank face going, you know, I wasn't born until 1990-whatever. I go, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, I'm under 40 if that helps you with any future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I'm 60 this year, so yeah, in my own parlance, I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> so, no, I don't remember the, the no. court bombings. So, what happened was um, in New South Wales, there was a, a series um, of bombings which um, at, at the family court out in Parramatta, um, but also at the premises of uh, of some of the judges. And in, in my very early days, we used to do the, the static guarding out there at the, um, at, at the judges' um, homes. Um, because one of the judges and his wife were unfortunately um, blown up by the bomb. So uh, there was a lot of oh. nervousness for many, many years yeah. um, beyond that. And, of course, you know, any family court uh, activity in the, when it comes to children is Emotions acrimonious. High. Yeah. yeah. You know, they, they can really get acrimonious. And we would often be called up to um, to try and um, placate because the New South Wales police wouldn't do it. They're like, uh-uh, this, this, this is not our gig. Over to you. You know, pardon the words, but they said you can have this shit show, <laughs> and, and that's what it was like often because you've got you know two parents there and they're throwing um, allegations at one another and calling names and and even getting quite violent and um, and there were there were men up in that area that had made threats against the court, so we would often be be having to deal with um, with that or having to oversee the um, the transfer of children, so or go and so. If a custody order was was given, and you have to go and take the the child off the father and give it to the mother, or vice versa, and that's that's hugely um, distressful uh, for everyone. Or 
the worst ones were, were when the, the partners wouldn't give up the child and a warrant's issued and you've got to go out and forcibly take the child. And uh, and again, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous because when you come to children and families, um, you know, in, in particular men, and we've seen this more and more enough in recent times, they'll go to the, the nth degree um, to, to, to seek vengeance, which means, you know, kill, kill the children, kill the wife, uh, or anyone else who gets in, involved, i.e. the police. So it was, um, yeah, it was, some of them were, were quite scary. Some of them were were, were really good. Um, a couple were, were quite funny. <laughs> so you, you got the gambit and it was the toss of the coin and the luck of the draw as to, you know, as to which warrants you got and where you had to go to get the kids. I was surprised that you mentioned funny. I wouldn't have thought. When I say funny, um, the, the story was there was a, we had to go out to a place right out the back of, of Musselbrook, which is west of Newcastle, northwest of Newcastle, sort of yeah. a, a farming, a, a, sort of mostly a farming area, and um, we couldn't get to the property we had to go to because we we needed a four wheel drive, so we had to get a four wheel drive. So we, had, we went to the New South Wales Police, and they they took us out there to, to pick this child up, and and um, it, it was with the grandparents um, because we we deliberately waited because we knew the mother came into town to go to work. Um, sorry, the father came into town to go to work. So we went and we met with the grandparents and they, they were wonderful. They were, you know, we, we kind of knew this day was coming. Um, you know, we're sad that we're going to have to let our, our grandchild go, but we, we respect what you do. Now, um, we can't, we, um, would you like to come and have lunch? Um, they made up a whole basket for us <laughs> of fruit and veggies and meat and stuff because it's a long way back, you know. You never know what's going to happen. Australian hospitality. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and um, and they just and I don't think they had too many visitors out there because they were just glad to be able to talk to someone else. And and, and we couldn't we couldn't get we got we got to get back we got to go. Oh, look, let <laughs> let me show you my let me show you the new pig trough I've put in and we went down and had a look at that and um, was it genuine or were they stalling till their no, son no, came no. back? No, 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 it was genuine. No, yeah. they they wouldn't have had a bone in their body and and they knew it was going to come. Just salt of the earth sort of people wanting to but, have a chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, with great with great common sense, they got it. You know, I mean, they, they certainly weren't educated. But they knew that that was going to happen, and they're yeah. going to have to fight it eventually. But I've never had that happen before, and it never happened again. You know, you, you go with this box full of food, and we're all there's four of us in the car. And we're all looking at one another with this little child. Did that going, just happen? Yeah. How did this happen? Very. Um, I would have thought that'd been very emotionally taxing for you, though. I mean, because it would be stressful for the child, and then you're dealing with the child in that car until you're. Giving them to the other parents, so I would imagine that would be fairly emotionally taxing on it, you. It is, it is, and yeah. often you, you had to hand them over to the welfare services, and and oh, you know goodness. they do a great job, but they're just so overworked, you know. Yeah, and that's not home. That's not no. home for the kid. Yeah, no, and yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean I can say this now because I'm no longer in the force, but I remember we did one particular job where we um, we had to take the child from the father to give to the mother, and, and when we went round. To the mother because the first thing you do is you you go to the parent that's um that's going to pick up the child so luckily they didn't live too far from one another but we went around i remember knocking on the door opened the door and and um i could smell the the, the stench of marijuana and incense and everything coming out the room and it was like one o'clock in the afternoon and we'd woken this this woman up and she was very bedraggled you could see she had issues with um with drugs and everything and I remember saying to my partner, "We, you know, we can't let this happen." And we looked at one another and we said, "Well, we have to." 
Um, so anyway, long story short, we, we got some legal advice. And so what what you do when you do these things, you, you do what's called execute a warrant. So when you execute a warrant, it means that the court has empowered you to, for instance, what's stated in the warrant, and that was remove the child from the father and present it back to the mother. So we went and um, and got the child. The father was great. You know, you could tell the child loved him, was looked after the 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 little fella didn't want to go. Mm. So we went to the father and we said, look, can you you tell your lad that you want to just park around the corner from mum's house? And, you know, if he's not comfortable, he just needs to hightail it. So the ch- we took the child. As soon as we got to the mum's place, he started kicking and screaming. I didn't want to go there. I don't want to go there. Um, and look, we said, we're really sorry. And it was really uh, emotional for the child. And, it was, you know, it's despite what people may think it's traumatic for us too because no one likes to do that especially with kids so we walked in she opened the door and we could smell the stench again and the little fellas bolted and i remember she she stood there and and she goes go and chase him and we we can't chase him and let a whole lot of expletives out and she goes you the court said you've got to bring the child to me and i said we did but it's not our fault that he ran off we've done what we have to do and she gave us a, a mouthful and then she's like, well, what have I got to do? I said, you've got to go back to the court and apply for another warrant because we've executed this now and um, you know, we, we we don't have any authority to go and uh, take that child. If we take that child, uh, we're actually kidnapping him. Anyway, she threw stuff at us and carried on and everything and um, we rang the dad and the dad had picked the child up uh, and gone back to the dad. Uh, we I don't know what happened. We never got another warrant to go and execute that while I was there. Mm. Um, but, you know, sometimes you've got to – it's – You've got to fudge about, the lines a little Well, bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got, to think, you've got to think of your own morals and, and, and things yeah. like that. And we did what we had to within the law. But what we didn't want was that boy to run off, some, you know, somewhere, which he probably yeah. would have, and, and potentially been on the streets and could have been harmed or what have you. So, I mean, some would argue it's unethical. But it's really just to make sure. Well, is it unethical if it's in the best interest of the child, and if you're like, it's I understand your legal obligation as a mm. as a law enforcement. But in terms of, I mean, you mentioned morals, but I mean, if you're putting a child by executing that warrant into mm. a harmful environment, like I wouldn't, I don't think what you did was bad. <laughs> I, I still don't to this day, uh, yeah. but I know others have said that you know you 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 didn't have the right to do that. And I said to do what, you know, to tell him to go to his father. I said, oh, well, you didn't tell him. His father told him, but you told the father. And I said, I told the father to be there in case, in case he, he ran. He, he ran, and and we would do that quite often. Yeah, uh, I said because our you know our focus is the health and welfare of that child. Yeah, you know. Um, so some would argue it's unethical. I didn't think it was. I just thought it was common sense, although some would argue the law and common sense don't necessarily no, mesh don't very mix. well. Mm. So this was in the 90s. This is around mm-hmm. the same time as you started doing Strongman. Uh, yeah, well, that was until I, I moved to Canberra. Uh, right. So I moved to Canberra in 94. Right. Um, I'd, I'd always watch Strongman. I'd been um, an avid. I was going to ask, it's a weird sport to sort of say, yeah, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring of doing being a Strongman. Yeah. It's not like yeah. I'll – Go play rugby, or I'll, you know, do I, you know, like it's a, it's a obscure sport in terms of. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to be drawn to obscure sports. Um, you know, bob <laughs> bobsled, strongman. Yeah. Have Anything. you have you tried bobsledding as well? Yeah, 
You have. Yes. Get yeah, out. Yeah. yeah, no, I, I was selected. Well, we, we made the um, we made the 1992 Winter Olympic squad, but we qualified, but they never took us. So I, I didn't oh. I didn't go. Yeah. But my teammates all went in subsequent years, which was great. Yeah. But um, yeah, look, again, you're far too young to, to remember this, but any one of my year will remember the old Channel 9 Wild World of Sports on Saturday afternoons. I do remember that. With Mike Gibson and, and Ian Chappell and all that. Well, they used to run, they used to have the World's Strongest Man shows. And I, I was fixated by it. I used to watch these behemoths, you know, lift these things and move these things. Yeah. And, I, and I remember saying, I'd love to do that one day, never knowing how to go about it or how to initiate it. But when I moved to Canberra um, and, and started work down there, I, uh, I was training at the um, Australian National University gym and I bumped into a a, a guy there who uh, I used to do athletics, like hammer throw, shot put, and, and David used to um, do hammer throw. And we were in the gym one day and, and he came up to me and he goes, hey, do you want to earn a few bucks on a weekend? And I went, tell me. Because, you know, you've got to find out what it is, like what yeah, is it you want to do. He goes, yeah. oh, no, we're setting up this strongman um, series that we uh, go around Westfields. And, you know, in Westfields, they have they used to have the shows at 11 and 1 a.m., you know, they'd have dancing or kids singing or whatever. And, I don't uh, know if so they still do that at the shopping centres. I don't think they no, do anymore, yeah. no. But back then, um, it was very popular. So he'd started up a, a strongman a group called the Tartan Warriors, and that's how I got into it. We used to go around to the Westfields all around the state and, um, you know, do a couple of little events for the people uh, at the show and then it just it grew from there. So you went, oh, I can pull a plane and no, train I didn't, and not stuff? not at that time, no. That was, that was, that was, that was a few years later. And I, that I was sounds just, like a good idea. Fuck yeah. my boiler pulling a plane. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I never ever thought that would be on the cards, um, not at all. Um, but of course it was, uh, yeah. and um, and I did, yeah. So, okay, so you're in, so early ni- so in the nineties so, now. So you're in the ACT ninety four in okay. Canberra, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, where did you go from there? Was that when you started to go into the sex crime squad? No, well, no. I spent four years there in what was internal affairs. Uh, oh. So the, the co cutters and the one. How the, was the, that? How were you it, received among? Because you see it on mo- in movies, like they're mm. always the hated mm-hmm. department, right? Yeah. yeah, and it was fair to say the same, and, oh, and probably okay. even more for me because um, I was uh, well, I was told I was the first uh, to come from interstate. So before all those that were in internal affairs, they were from Canberra based. So I'd come down from New South Wales, from Newcastle, mm. and uh, and I did it because uh, my old course instructor when I. Um, when I got my detective's designation, um, was there. And he said, we're, we're looking for people from interstate. Would you like to have a crack at it? And I went, yeah, you know, I think it would be interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was – it. there were some times where it wasn't pleasant, um, mm. you know, where you'd be called names and things, usually by people that were weak that would do it behind doors or places where you couldn't see them. Or, you know, there, there's different things that, that people would do. You were essentially ostracised. Um, yeah, yeah. Because and look again, I understand that, but but when, also I think it's the nature of the work. Because if you get too, if you seem to be too friendly with a particular person mm, outside the department, mm, and then down the track they end up under investigation, mm, that that can look unfavorably upon you in terms of yeah. favoritisms and stuff. So I can understand the need in some in some regards mm, to self ostracize. 
Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, and you do do that as well. You mm. um, you know you don't go to any any events or anything. Well, I, I didn't anyway. Uh, but it also I guess it helped me in a way is that I didn't know you know that many people down there. I knew a few, but not a lot. Yeah. And um, but uh, you know I the greatest piece of advice that I got before I, you know I started there was just treat it like you normally would. You know, there's a presumption of innocence, um, which it is when you talk to anybody, and um, and I, you know, I, I always operated on the line that if, if people are honest and upfront and want to help in terms of, you know, getting whatever the allegation was done, I'll, I'll go to the end of the earth to help them. But there were many, many people there that, that, you know, behaved oppositely. And um, I remember I had one guy once, they had a waiting room um, there where they'd come up and wait and then you'd get the call to go out. And I, I went out and he had his back turned, he was on the phone and he, he put his hand up when I when I went to talk to him and I heard him talking on the phone and um, he was ordering tickets to go to the football and he just, he would like, it was just completely arrogant. And I thought that's, that's not a good way to, to start off. No. And that's what it was like during the whole interview. Uh, you know, he was just completely arrogant, dismissive, rude, obnoxious. And, um, and I thought, wow, you know, I can't help you. And, uh, yeah, and I didn't. I, I think there's a, like the arrogant, like I don't agree with the arrogance and obnoxious and what he obviously did with the hand up is, a, is appalling. But, and I am thankful to say, and probably because I'm so, you know, I'm not in this area of my life is anything. I think the worst thing I've ever done is a bloody speeding ticket. <laughs> um, like if I ever got questioned by the police, because I have because you guys are so skilled at twi- like twisting things and stuff, I'd just be oh, like, "Oh come on, no, we don't I'd twist be like, things." No comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be innocent as the bloody anything. I'd be like, "No comment." <laughs> well, I'd be uh, terrified. <laughs> and you know what? That that in itself says something because that says that you've never had a dealing with you know with police before. So yeah, well, I haven't. No, no. And, and look, I mean, I, I've had it. I, I, even now I'm retired now, I have it. You know, you get pulled over for a breath test or you get something and you think, wow, you need an attitude readjustment, boy, because you know, you're, um, you're, you're feeding into the narrative about all police. And, you know, a smile goes a long way. And a, um, just being, being genuine goes a long way in terms of, of what you do. There are times, of course, when, when you don't um, because you can't. But mostly, if you're dealing with members of the public, you know, people make a mistake. We all make mistakes. God, I've made that many mistakes. I, I, I couldn't count on them. And it's those ones that go, hey, you know what? Sorry. Yep, I was speeding. I just drifted off. I didn't know. I, I apologize. And and then, then you know, you you help them. But you get those ones that want to fight and argue and, and do things and tell you that your systems are wrong or your process or you're talking out of your backside. And you go, well, I can't help you. Mm. Yeah, and 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 if someone said to me, I don't want to say anything, I said, well, that's your right. I'm, I've got no problem with that. And once someone, that's the right. Um, that just means that the whole process takes a lot longer because you got to go back and do a whole lot of work to to answer the questions that you were going to answer the individual. Again, you know, that's just that's just what it is. But um, but it's everybody's everybody's choice to say no. You know, the presumption of innocence and the privilege, uh, the the right to have a, a lawyer present is. Hundred percent. So, yeah. Just do you think? The rules. Do you think in in policing nowadays, and I say this as you're retired, but do you think that the presumption of innocence is still? I know it's meant to be as per the law, 
But I think the more we do trial by media, it's more proving your innocence rather than proving the guilt. Uh, there's a lot more of that because of social media. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, um, and and unfortunately, depending on who the individual is, it's uh, it's sometimes very difficult to get a to get a um, a balanced hearing, uh, mm. especially before a jury. And and thank thank God I didn't have to deal with that. And, and having every you know every move that I made filmed by a thousand phones and and things like that, and then things that are selectively edited and put up on social media platforms which don't necessarily tell the whole story. And I mean, look, it has its value as well, uh, where you know where it's obvious that you know whoever the off police officer is is doing the wrong thing. Yeah, sure, um, that that's great. But I, I think what happens is that people forget that the police are human too, and they're just doing a job. And and I I have this phrase. I can't remember whether I I borrowed it from someone because you never steal anything. You know, I was happy to give it back. But it was that it was basically you can steal the phrase. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the only job in the world where where you know half of society hates you for what you do and the other half hates you for what you don't do. You know. Yeah. So you're kind of stuck in a bit of a, a void, and that, and that, that feeds into that culture. But um, but it, it is it is far more difficult uh, these days. You're right with um, the huge amount of social media that's out there and how quickly that can be placed on platforms uh, even before people are charged and and gone to court um, and, and convicted and, and that that's sad in a way it's sad if they're um, to a degree for the police especially if they've done nothing wrong um, it's sad for the individual because potentially you know they didn't want their their whole life broadcast and have people digging into their background and doing things like that uh, but that's the way that's what happens when you, you know, as a society, we evolve and the laws need to catch up with some of that because some of the laws that we have, you know, were still written back in the 1900s, so they need to evolve. How long were you in the internal investigations for? Uh, almost four years and then I got posted to Los Angeles for three and a half years. What were you doing in LA? So as the AFP, AFP. Yeah, so AFP has uh, yeah, international liaison officers. I think last count, up around uh, nearly 100 people in about um, 30, 35 countries around the world. So what's your role? Because obviously it's very defined if you're in Australia doing counterterrorism and, you know, courts and stuff. Mm -hmm. But then, like, what does the international liaison for the AFP do? So you're basically an intermediary. So you have no, you have no powers or no authority when mm -hmm. you go to... Say, say to Los Angeles, yeah. um, but what you have is you have the representation behind you as an AFP officer, but also you're representing um, the whole of the country. So the whole idea is to really not only act as an interlocutor, but also to drive um, or to be a, a, a conduit for, in this case, uh, American uh, law enforcement, if, for instance, some element of an investigation or a crime involves an Australian. Uh, and um, and believe me, there's a lot. <laughs> so are you uh, dealing? Are you sorry? Are you dealing with the FBI or are you dealing with LAPD? All, all right. and ever. Okay. So from FBI through to LAPD. And when I was in Los Angeles, my my remit was the um, the four western provinces of Canada. Uh, the, 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 the there's a um, Kansas Missouri line which cuts the country in half. So anything west of that, Alaska and Hawaii. So, um, and given that LA is usually the first port of call, LA and San Francisco, from people that are traveling from Australia, there's quite a lot of things um, 
you know, that are, that are happening there that law enforcement uh, are involved in, both from an Australian perspective and a, and a US um, perspective. And in those days, also, we would also act on behalf of the US because they didn't have any law enforcement officers in Australia. So they needed something done in Australia. We could we would help them and, you know, shepherd them through the processes um, as to get whatever it is they needed to obtain. So did you have a team of people that you that worked under you? Because that sounds like a really busy role. Considering yeah, no, the there, there were two of us. So I was the yeah. junior and I had a superintendent over there with me okay. uh, and it was just the two of us and we kind of divided up the, the workload. Um, although in the, in the hierarchy, you know. Um, you got all the shit know, stuff, didn't you, Grant? Put blows downhill, so <laughs> you cut your teeth on that. <laughs> were you based at the consulate? Were you based yeah. in you were yeah. okay. So it's a it's a it's a pseudo diplomatic posting. So you have um you have either a diplomatic or official status uh, while you're over there um for for the time that you you know you're working. Yeah. How long were you over there for? Three years. Were you married at this time? Yes. Yeah. So did your wife go over with you? My first wife went and my oldest daughter went. Uh, she was about five when we went over there. Okay. Um, and living in Los Angeles, we were living in Brentwood, which is, you know, um, kind of where a lot of the, the um, I guess. Undesirable? The, the, no, the regal element oh, of Los okay. Angeles. Yeah. So, you know, I got <laughs> so to meet. So you were with all the tops. And- <laughs> uh, well, yeah, a lot of the movie, we'd see a lot of the movie stars and okay. inadvertently, you know, get to know them and, uh, and things like that. Uh, so um, at my daughter's school, you know, there were a lot of um, a lot of people involved in the film industry that had their kids going there and things like that. So you'd you'd run across them. So so three years, okay, yeah. that would have been a bit of a culture shock for your daughter and um, well, it for was. three of you, yeah, mm. yeah. What made you come back? Was it just the end of the posting, or yes, yeah? Did, it was... did... Sorry, go. No, it, it was the end of the posting. So. Um, we, we always toyed between three and four years. Um, back then, it was it was three. Um, so yeah, I, I, lo- I loved every moment of it. Um, mm. You know, it was great, and I, I met lifelong friends over there, and and still to this day, you know, um, communicate with them. Um, it's great. How long have you been in the force by this stage? By that, when you come back? Um, so that I came back in '98. So I, uh, sorry, in 2001. So I'd been in 15, 16 years when I when I came back. Had you always, when you joined, did you say, I'm just going to do a couple of years to get out? Or were you always going to be sort of a lifer? No, I was always a lifer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A lot of people that joined with me did that, okay. did a couple of years and got out. And In fact, I was the last person standing when I retired out of my 28, 28 in my course. So they'd all wow. left at various stages, yeah. So 2001, so prior to? Just before 9-11. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I came back uh, to Canberra, and um, and that's when I was um, I was put into intelligence. Uh, and initially, I was I was working um, mostly on, on what was called then the cocaine desk, so doing all the work because of my time in America, uh, doing a lot of work around the cocaine. Uh, mm. And then it was shortly thereafter that I um, I got thrust into the um, exploitation of women and children role, which was a a new role for the AFP at the time. We, um, I was going to ask you whether or not it was a choice to go into that, mm. or particularly because you had a wife and daughter at the time. Mm. Mm. Um, I wondered if you actually had a choice to go into that unit. Um, not, not really, because we we didn't really have anything set up. I mean, we we had a small group that were uh, doing in the early stages of the internet online work, uh, but on the human trafficking side, uh, we we hadn't. We had nothing. We hadn't done it before. 
uh, we had legislation, and that was part of the reason why I got put there because there were um, a couple of journalists who had um, sources uh, in, in the community who had been trafficked for sex work uh, from other parts of the world and were advocating that, that the government needed to do something about that. Uh, and hence, that's that's sort of where I got thrust into that. So initially, it was um, it was more of um, just being able to tick the box and say we got someone working on this. Um, but I was initially very much a alone alone uh, alone operator in that. What rank were you at this stage? Uh, equivalent of sergeant. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So my my first uh, my first role in two thousand and two was to. Um, Ironically, travel back to the U.S. to Washington to represent Australia at a um, at the U.S. Department of State uh, Human Trafficking uh, Conference, and um, I knew nothing about it. <laughs> I, had to, I had to go and research like crazy to work out what this whole new world I was about to step into was. And I, I remember um, one one of my colleagues who was in Washington. I, I remember him, um, calling him and saying, "Mate, you need to get me some information from the Department of State." on all this trafficking stuff. And I, he sent back a bundle of documentation, which I, um, I I read on the flight on the way over, didn't sleep, trying to get my myself uh, up to um, speed. And um, thank God I did, because when I got there, um, I I, um, I was told by the organisers that I was going to moderate a panel. Um, <laughs> moderate a, um, and I couldn't really let them know that I was, you know, just this junior beaver that had <laughs> been, been handballed this um, this hospital pass yeah and um and so it was a bit like a united nations meeting you had all the interpreters upstairs and we're sitting in this room and we got about 40 people from different countries and um wow it was an experience and there were people slapping desks thumping desks standing up and yelling and carrying on because the u.s have this trafficking in persons report they put out every year and what they do is they grade each country into a tier and depending upon where you sit um Except for the US, they're they're um, they're exempt from that. Um, otherwise, they'd probably be in one of the lower groups. But they fund a lot, so the, a consequence of that is that the US would um, reduce funding um, to countries if they didn't um, actively uh, become involved in pursuing um, human trafficking, uh, which was a lot of a lot of countries, of course, didn't want that. And Australia at the time uh, were bordering on a tier three or tier two, which was the lowest level. Um, and, um, so when you say lowest level, lowest level in terms of activity? Lowest level in terms – so tier one is that you've got a fully functioning legal system, you've got fully fully operational um, victim support, you've got fully um, – right. you know, uh, tier so we're, two. So we're rubbish. We're we, ru- were. Yeah. we were. Yeah. We, we yeah. were. We were. We were. Well, we were non-existent. Um, I know Victoria Police were, were, were doing a little bit involved with that and they did some great work involved with that, but we had specific federal laws that when I got involved, we'd never – We'd never ever um, arrested anyone, or I don't. Know, I think we'd we'd tried to mount some operations, but um, in the scheme of things, they, they were considered uh, low low value operations. Of mm. course, you can we would never ever say that today um, no. because you're talking about human life. You're talking about you know women and children that are being put through horrendous, you know. And when I say horrendous, you know, some horrendous situations um, to have to pay off these debts that. They, um, the traffickers have um, placed around their neck. There's a company in America, they're a not-for-profit, they're called the Deliver Fund. Have you heard of them? I have, yeah. yeah. They're incredible. I've yeah. I've listened to a few of the podcasts with them and um, 
for those listening that don't know, so well, I think one's an ex-CIA and the other one's ex-NSA, and so they've used the skills for um, how they've developed target packages in those mm. areas yep. to now target um, sex traffickers and human mm. traffickers, and they've mm. set up this huge network which the law enforcement can um, update and interact with and sort of it's a spider's web of all the information. They're incredible. Yep. Oh, look, it's evolved so yeah. much, you know, since then. I mean, it's it's actually great to see. Um, yeah, are, are we doing enough? Um, probably, probably not. When I yeah. say we globally, but are we better placed than what we were? Yeah, yeah, we are. I, I mean, in the Australian parlance, the government struggled as to where it fit. It, it's it initially sat under immigration, um, and immigration back in those days, their, their mindset was: if we find these girls, we turn them around and send them home. Um, that's that's terrible, and, and I'll, I'll just put a caveat here: not all women that that are trafficked um, have never been involved in sex work. There, there were a number mm. that had been involved in sex work, especially in Thailand, but they were um, they they were deceptively recruited, so they were duped. So basically, they thought they were coming over to do sex work where they make really really good money because they, you know, they they feed the money back to their families. That's mm. a cent essentially what they do mm. um and they thought that they were coming over to do that but when they'd come over here you know their passport would be taken all their identification would be taken and then they're given this 70 or eighty thousand dollar debt that they've got to pay off before they can send any of that money back and what the traffickers would do is they would write wait to the very end till they paid their debt off give them a month and then they'd make an anonymous tip to immigration and say if you go to this place here, you'll find these girls that are that are get their prostitutes. yeah yeah so they they do that to get them out of the country so that they, um, you know, if the police came along, they they couldn't talk. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these women, um, and they didn't they didn't sign up for the volume of work. I mean, when we talk about volume of work, we're talking about sometimes between um, you know ten and and fifteen to twenty um, you know jobs per night, mm. which, which you know, I was told back in the day was excessive, and I, I couldn't imagine, you know, what what it'd be like. They also weren't given protection, and they were also basically told do whatever the the client wants type things. Um, they were first to, they were forced to work through their periods. Um, they would put um, use sea sponges, so that mm. you know, I, I don't want to go into gross details, but just to give yeah. the listeners a bit of an idea of what horrific it was. conditions. It was horrific. They were, they were locked yeah. up basically. They were let out um, only to go to work. Or uh, so, you know, they rarely saw daylight because they, they would sleep during the day, work in the night. Um, you know, often five, six, seven in a, in a small bedroom. Um, it was it was horrible. It's no way to treat a human being. I've asked a number of the guests this that have uh, families that when they've worked in those sort of or come across those sorts of cases, how it affects your parenting. Mm. I'm not a parent, but I would imagine that I would not want to let my child out of the house and, you know, there'd be cotton wool and bubble wrap and yeah. you know, all the rest of it. How, yeah. did it. how did it affect the way that you parent or did it? Um, I didn't think it did originally, mm. uh, and um, but but it did. Mm. Uh, it, 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 you, you can't help but be impacted by it. And I, I think... It's more the cumulative exposure as you you see more and more and more and more and you become mm. more and more involved. Um, it, you know, you start to realise how precious life is, and, and how, in particular, with children, 
you know, how vulnerable they are and without protection, um, they get abused. So it, it did. Uh, I, I got to the stage, you know, much later on with both my daughters and even with the young one now, you know, I, always, I said to my first wife and my wife now, don't ever leave me at home with, um, you know, with my daughter's friends there. Not, not that I'm worried that I would do anything. No, not at all. It's more the fact that um, I don't um, want to be, be in, a, in a position that anything happens. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've had, you know, I, when Facebook came out, I, I would, often I would be frantically telling people, please don't put these images up on there. Please don't do that uh, because I know what these people do with these images, etc. You know, you, people innocently take a photo of the young, young child in a bath. Um, mm. Now, t- technically, under the law as it stands today, um, that, that's a that's a low level. Um, if someone's in possession of that and it's not a family member, um, that's a that's a low level charge in that regard. But more the fact of um, uh, of educating, I found myself not not only educating, you know, my first wife and my second wife. Well, I shouldn't say educating; that sounds arrogant. Talking about things that need to change. Well, it is educating because if you're not if you're not exposed to that, you don't know. Like no. you, so, there is a level of education there. Yeah. Like I get that statement. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but but um, what, you know, what I was seeing, we we had very little Australians being trafficking outward. Um, there were a few, um, which a lot of people wouldn't realise that women, Australian women are trafficked, but they were mainly yeah. trafficked by the Japanese to Japan because of the prevalence of liking the um, the light coloured um, white women. Really, I would have thought it would be more tourists overseas that would have been then put into those sorts of situations. So they're actually trafficked out of Australia. Yeah, there were there were a few. Uh, they they wouldn't. They they declared that you know they were sort of deceptively or forcibly removed. Yeah, uh, and did work over there, but they didn't want any. They didn't want any charges um, uh, to be brought. Uh, because they knew that they were dealing with some very nasty people, yeah. uh, which all of them are. Uh, but um, and, and it's and that's why you got to have these victim, you know, the victim um, support programs in place. Australia didn't have any at the time, uh, because when when you rescue these women, um, you know, firstly they're they're petrified of law enforcement because in their own country, that usually means you know potential corruption or they're just going to get taken out of a criminal and given to another one by a corrupt officer. So, you know, they wouldn't talk to us. They didn't want to be involved. Um, and, and and setting up systems where you've got support for those women to actually, um, you know, go, and then to help them get the visas that they needed and to help them establish themselves uh, and then give them the option whether they wanted to return home or not. Some did, which meant that you also had to work, for instance, uh, say in Thailand, where you you know, we had to work with some local non-governments over there to help set up um, some uh, welfare support there because we didn't want them to go back and then go straight back into the, you know, in, into sex work in yeah. the industry. And then, you know, it happens all over again. Um, you've got places like Moldova back in the early 2000s where pretty much that country was wiped of a generation of young girls uh, because really? they were all trafficked, yeah, tra- mostly by Russian organised crime. Oh my goodness! And, um, it's stuff that I've never ever heard of. No, no, and there's there's not a lot out there unless you're sort of di- you know diving into the weeds into some of the books that have been written. Yeah. Uh, but that caused a huge social upheaval in Moldova because you had a whole generation of young young men that couldn't find partners. Mm. Um, and then you know when when these women were taken out of Moldova, the Russians would bring in other women to fill the void in terms of prostitution from other countries. Um, 
So it's just this, you know, it's almost a wicked problem in, in, in some sense that you're just trying to plug the holes wherever they go. And mm. um, d- depending upon the nature of the, the country that you're going to and the predilection or the desire of the individuals is where the women are trafficked. So here in Australia, it's mostly Southeast Asia. You know, you talk to the to the men that traffic them or the, the people that visit them, it's because of the subservient nature of those women and they'll do, you know, what they're told, et cetera. And, um, and um, because of our, I guess, our travel to places like Bali and, and um, uh, Phuket and, and Bangkok and things like that, we, the Asian women are more preferable. Uh, yet when I was in Hong Kong, just over in Macau, um, they were all uh, East Asian women. So, that you know, they were from the, the Balkan countries because they prefer um, the taller, the white women. And these were women that were mostly being fed into the, the, the massive gambling system in Macau. And, you know, I could go on and around all the different places in the world, you know, how, how this operates. It's sort of like once you, you start peeling back, um, you know, a corner, it's sort of like you, you then sort of start and there's no way just having this conversation or the listeners are going to ever understand how prevalent and how organised it is and how widespread it is. But you sort of start seeing those tentacles, and it's bloody everywhere. Like it's scary. Mm. It is. It is. And I, 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 hand on heart, would would ask any country to stand up and and uh, and say that we don't have an issue, you know, with human trafficking. And and now we we talk about labour trafficking. Um, mm. You know, in countries there's child trafficking. Um, there's still organ trafficking in some countries. You know, where people harvest organs for you know rich. Western people for transplant when they can't if they can't get on a, a list. It's not as prevalent as it used to be, but it still it still exists. Hmm. I was one of the things that struck me um, in the Australian Story interview that I saw or program that I saw about you was the fact that because you ended up being or were a senior person in that department that you took on more of the horrific. Um, subject matters, which was the same when I interviewed Narelle Fraser, who was, um, are you aware of Narelle Fraser? So she was an ex-Victorian uh, copper who was in um, the okay. sex crimes unit. Uh, and that, she that's who I've heard the name, yeah. She didn't have any children, so she mm. would take on those sorts of cases. So the people, you know. Mm. And I thought that's a, such a selfless thing to do, but it's, it's a recipe for disaster, really, isn't it, in terms of the cumulative effect? Oh, it, it is. And, yeah. um, you know, it, it, at the same time, I, I had responsibility for the human traffic and I also had responsibility for um, the online uh, distribution of pornographic material. So this mm. was, again, in the early 90s when the internet just really started to, to gain some momentum. And and what happened is the, the, the federal government, we didn't have laws to be able to investigate that. So the state jurisdictions would investigate all those, but we had the authority where we would collect all the information. So all the videos, all the material where children are being exploited, where we think it's occurring in Australia would come through us. I had a team of four initially to start off with. There was myself, another officer, and then there was two non-sworn women um, that were there. Um, And, you know, they were brilliant. They were so tenacious and would work hard. But can you imagine sitting in front of a computer 
for eight to ten hours a day and all you're doing is going mm. through children being abused. And, um, and what Narelle was saying, then she had to watch it three times, once with just audio, once with just the visual mm. and then with, with everything. Mm. And so it's a triple. Yeah. 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 And that's even before you get to court. But, yeah. Um, and the reason that you do that is that you're looking for cues. You're and, gra- looking for and grading levels of the offence. Uh, well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and because as I said, uh, there used to be five tiers, but it, it, it's all different now. But you know, for us, the, the the primary the primary focus was any child that was in immediate harm would be a priority, mm. and, and there were always some. And, and to give you an idea, uh, well, when was the last time I was at the in the US, the the National Center for Mission, Miss, Missing and Exploited Children, NECMEC. Um, is, is based just out of Washington, D.C. Um, they do all all the the capturing of that material. So I was last there, I think, in 2017, and they were telling me then that Australia, roughly, we get about uh, 18,500 hits on IP addresses every year um, of Australians looking into into child, you know, child porn. Um, 18,500, you know. That, that's, that's disgusting, isn't that's it? That's a lot, Yeah. And um, the volume is just amazing. So you've got to try and prioritise, which is sad because, you know, there are some lower priority ones which may, may be relatively innocuous at the time but could very much escalate beyond that. But you can only do what you're funded to do. And, um, and uh, it's, it's that, 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 again, that moral issue of, of the, you know, what if, the woulda, the shoulda, the coulda if you know, find something happens. Um, but there is a, a universal, and this is where police come together really well, um, there's a universal um, collective and just about everyone that I've seen in those units are so dedicated mm. because all for the same reason, you know, children deserve to have a know, childhood, a childhood. Yeah. But unfortunately, outs- well, not un- well, it happens in, a lot happens in Western countries, but outside of Western you know, countries, um, people just take advantage of, of, of young kids and, the, the abuse is, is is horrendous, and I'm talking from children as young as six months old, you know, right Horrific. up. Horrific. You know, uh, and I'm I'm not going to uh, give no. you any detail of Please that because you know, no one wants to have that burn in their brain. It's it's bad enough here, but suffice to say, uh, you know, I, I used to try and get my guys to do it first without the sound, um, depending because without the sound, it's only sort of invading one sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you've got to you've got to hear you've got to eventually hear the sound. Awful. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Mm. How long were you in that department for? Because you ended up moving over to America again at some stage. Yeah, I did. I did. Uh, I was there from about two thousand and two on, on and off because I was in and out all the time uh, till about t- uh, two thousand and six. Yeah. Yeah. About about two thousand and six. Um, when I got, I got promoted to to superintendent, and then I went um, I went back into Intel um, for two years, and then I got deployed to East Timor. Yeah, the overseas deployments is interesting. I can understand why the military is over there in terms of um, peacekeeping. Um, but why is the AD? Uh, so I always say ADF because I've had so many ADF <laughs> people on there. Why is the AFP over in East Timor? Well, back around that time, I think we we had um, I think almost ten. Was it 10? No, about three thousand people 
um, in a position to deploy offshore. So for East Timor, um, for those that cast their mind back, will recall what happened um, in uh, the late 90s when um, when, when the Timorese were granted um, their autonomy and the Indonesians um, pretty much torched the place and and uh, leaving because Indonesia was then um, the authority in East Timor. Uh, there were massive human rights issues and we sent um, a number of people over into the UN mission, United Nations mission for, for peacekeeping. The, the main difference is military, military go in, um, they secure peace. That's what they're, they're brilliant at. You know, they drive out the bad guys, they get things calmed back down. But, but what often happens is in situations like that in many countries around the world, um, post-conflict, there's no law enforcement there. So what happens is criminals fill the void. So it's like all the oxygen's taken out of the room when, you know, when, when the conflict happens and then they're very quick at being able to, to come in and, um, and set up their, their capability. And time and time again, this happens. So the idea of the police, bringing the police in, is to, as soon as possible, preferably concurrently, start to work with whatever remnants are of the police and build that law and order to maintain that, that law and order and adherence to the rule of law rather than sort of t making it fall into a um, in, into an, in like an anarchist state. So that was, and given the proximity to Australia um, and um, and they, they were our closest neighbours, second closest neighbours, I think, to Papua New Guinea, um, you've also got that that obligation. So the, the government, you know, well, the military and the police worked hand in hand there for many, many years. Then in 2007, there was the there was the situation that arose where the, the police and the military started fighting each other in Timor, and there are numbers, you know, numbers killed. Um, there were poor behaviours and poor practices, and uh, and that's when uh, the program not fighting our military, their military. No, no, they're fighting theirs, but but they okay. would fight ours, you know, as, as you know, if ours got involved, they would they would fight them as well, um, mm. because both sides believed that the you know the other had support from from what have you. But it was more of an internal conflict um, with the, with the police and the military there. So the the government um, back then gave us about eighty eighty five million to set up this uh, enhance what was called the Timor Leste Police Development Program, which is still in existence today, um, where we um, the AFP would work. Um, building the capability and the structures of the police, um, because often in, in many many countries the military are often held much higher because it's an aspirational job to get. Police are usually not you know not well trained, not well equipped, uh, don't don't have the, the skills to be able to do what they do, and um, and often because of corruption don't get paid and things like that, which mm -hmm. leads them into that corrupt behaviour. Uh, so that was that was the purpose of, of me going to, to Timor, and I had at one stage we had about almost 80, 80 police working there on that, and then we had fifty in the United Nations as well. So I mean, it's a it's a civic, significant contribution. So how long were you over there for? Two years. How long was our military over there for? They do two. They do six month rotations. But how uh, long were, were there we there for? Together. Yeah. Uh, the, the same. Um, two years. So uh, your your wife wasn't longer. over there with you then? No, by that stage <laughs> I'd, I'd become divorced. Okay. So yeah, uh, so it was you know um, I, I went over uh, with that. I said my daughter was about fifteen at the time um, when I went over there. My oldest daughter. Yeah. So the um, the, the purpose was uh, my role was multifunctional. I was also the security advisor to the the sec secretary of state for security, which is like the minister for security. 
Um, so, you know, trying to advise him um, in terms of what needed to be done in terms of building the police capability, et cetera, and then working across many, many players, the United Nations and, and others, to try and help build the police so that they they um, they wouldn't, wouldn't behave like they'd been behaving before and to drive that wedge between the police and military and get... There were other... The, the A lot of the military that were there at the time were doing the same with the military, saying, you know, you need to look outside, the police look internally. Um, and, and that was, you know, getting that traditional uh, f- framework uh, up that... Um, that's used mostly around the world. I was um, I was quite young when that conflict was going on, peacekeeping mission was going on, and the only the only real thing I I remember about it was the bloody concert that they had over there for the troops, <laughs> <laughs> Carly Minogue and um, yeah, yeah. What's he? Who, who's um, oh, Johnny like, Farnham? Johnny Farnham yeah. was over there, yeah. Yeah, a, a lot came through. I mean, you know, we were often the forgotten cousins there, but uh, you know, we, we were. When I was there, we were always uh, invited to to come and things like that. But but you know, one of the issues that the AFP had for a long time is is that they were reluctant to blow their own trumpet. So a lot of folks didn't know what we do or mm. what we did. Well, I, um, you know, I'm still well now. Obviously, not as in the dark, but I yeah. before it was yeah, very in the dark. Well, I, I've had f- former prime ministers and uh, high level um, officials of government come to me and actually say to me. Uh, what is it that the AFP does, you know? (laughs) And these are people in government and it's like, wow. You know? (laughs) Thanks for the funding. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, At what point do you, at what point do you go over to Afghanistan? Because in between East Timor and Afghanistan, you have met your current wife. Yes, I met her when I got back from uh, East Timor. Although we were aware of one another, but uh, yeah. I met her when I came back from um, from East Timor in 2010. Yeah. So the story goes that she was checking you out at the gym. <laughs> she was a personal trainer. Yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I mean, I look. You know, I, I got to throw my hands up here. You know, when it comes, uh, I, I'm I'm pretty oblivious to if anyone sort of would would make an overture towards me. It kind of goes over my head. Um, when I was in Hawaii, I lived in Hawaii for a while. I was on a scholarship there to the university playing football. And I remember as I was leaving, uh, this uh, young girl there who was um, all freshmen got tutors. So you had tutors that come in to help you academically. And uh, and um, we became, you know, sort of good friends and everything. And then she came up, she came to me before I was leaving and she goes, oh, I want to get your advice. I've got this friend of mine who's, you know, seen, is sort of, knows this guy and is really keen, but he doesn't seem to be interested. And have you got any advice? And I, I obliged and I gave her all this advice about what she should do with a friend and and what have you. And it was many, many, many months later um, when I was back in Australia and I thought, oh, no, I think she was talking about me, you know. Um, and I've been like that all my life, um, unfortunately. <laughs> I sort of, sort of got my head stuck up in the proverbial. <laughs> How did you get deployed to Afghanistan? Was it a similar sort of situation to East Timor in regards to training their local police force? Uh, yes, it was, yeah. but but hugely different in, in that it was in a um, in, in a war zone, in a combatant zone. Yeah. Um, so what happened is in two thousand when I got back in two thousand and ten, I um, I was uh, put into uh, cybercrime. 
and had had the capability of the cybercrime, which took me back into the, the child exploitation because by that stage it had been moved into into that area. Oh, goodness, okay. But I was I was at a higher rank, so I, I wasn't viewing everything day and day, but I had people there that were, and I was acutely aware of that. Um, so I was working in that, and then um, in 2012, yeah, I, I was asked uh, – would I be interested in going to Afghanistan to head our, our mission to Afghanistan? Um, the AFP had been in Afghanistan at that stage since 2007 in various iterations. Uh, but this was the largest commitment that we had over there at this stage, which was close to 40 people. So um, we had people based in Kabul, in, down in Tarankout, where the Australian com component was, and in Kandahar, which is where the major air base is. And um, I was going over in a newly formed um, position as the head of the International Police Coordination, sorry, the deputy head of the International Police Coordination Board of Afghanistan. It was headed by a former UK diplomat. Um, and the idea was was to, to try and harness all the, um, the capability that was being undertaken by the many, many countries. There was like, I think, 40, close to 50 countries there all in doing their own thing and nothing was coordinated. Um, so that was a whole idea. So I had a whole bunch of people from all around the world, plus some AFP and some Afghans working um, with me over there, trying to, to bring that beast together, so that we um, so that we had a um, uh, we harnessed the, the the methods of training them because you'd have elements of the police trained by the Germans, some trained by the Croatians, trained by the Americans, trained by the Brit and everyone was getting different training and we were trying to bring that together. But most importantly, we were trying to get the, the, the minister to um, sign off on a, um, on a holistic or not holistic, it's probably the wrong word, on a, um, a, a program that would mean that all police in Afghanistan, we're talking about a, at that stage around about 157,000 police would be trained. They're all trained in the same ways and the same capabilities. We were looking at things at at, um, at their rank structure, um, you know, their payment systems, um, their their uh, use of um, particularly electronic systems. But but a majority of, of the police were illiterate over there, so they couldn't read or write. Uh, same as in East Timor. Uh, so there's all these challenges that were sent over there to try and um, and do. And I was based in Kabul. Um, Did you uh, ever have any hope? I, I, I started to see a glimmer of hope um, probably uh, in the last six months because we got sign off on a um, on a uh, on a plan. So it, it, it took a while, um, but the the team the um, Afghans had a um, we developed a, a, a ten year vision with a two-year plan. We tried to get them to do a 10-year plan, but they said 10 years is too long in Afghanistan. So we were going in two-year blocks, but they agreed to the vision and they agreed to the plan. And it was the first time in pretty much in the history of Af Afghanistan that there was a coordinated approach in terms of getting them all to do the same thing rather than be trained in different provinces or trained under different different you know national, um, national capabilities. Yeah. Yep. And it was really going well. Um, long, long way to go. Um, but I suspect, I think that the board is still underway, but it doesn't have the, the policing capability now because everyone's withdrawn. Um, when did I you come? A, sorry, so I was going to say, the, the, the greatest achievement that I saw in my time there was the fact that uh, young girls were going back to school. You know, And we had a school right next to where I was living. Um, mm. 
at the at the uh, compound that I was at, and it was for a country that was absolutely you know um, poverty stricken. Every one of these girls would turn up to school in pristine uniforms. You know, you would you would look like you were, you know, looking at a at a private you know a private school in Melbourne the way that they presented, and they were so proud to be able to go to school and get an education. That ain't happening anymore, unfortunately. No. What year did you come back? Uh, end of two thousand and thirteen. Okay. So I was I was there um, um, for just on a year. So I went the end of 2012 and came back into 2013. When did you start seeing the signs of PTS? I don't like saying the D on the end of it because I don't think it's a disorder. No, no, it's an injury. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's often now in the, in North America, especially, it's called PTSI. Uh, and I agree, 100%. It's yeah. an injury. It's not, it's, not a, uh, it's not a disorder or a disability. Uh, I, unbeknown to me at the time, um, there were markers there but I didn't know what the markers were. I, I started to see My first experience of it was um, I'd not long been back and um, I was down here in Queensland at the local school. I was still on leave and I was, I was doing some training and, uh, and I, I heard this of what I thought was machine gun fire and my body reacted straight away. In fact, my body probably reacted before my mind did. And I hit the ground and I did all the things that I was trained for. And I, I was discombobulated. I, I couldn't understand why, hang on, I'm back in Australia, but I'm, I'm hearing what I'm used to hearing over in Afghanistan. This is not right. And I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile it in my brain. Um, and I, I thought, surely it's not an attack on a school. You know, this is in America. And then I, I realized it was school holidays. So I, you know, went tree to tree and peeked around and I could hear this my heart rate was through the roof. I was sweating. I was, and um, and what it was, it was uh, during uh, school holidays, they had a paintball uh, group up there that were doing paintball oh. um, things for schools. And, and I, I, it, I, went, I remember I came home and told my wife and it really, um, it, it really um, caused me some grief. And I mentioned it to the psych in the AFP and the response was, oh, look, that's all right. That's common. That happens when you come back from a war zone. You know, you'll, you'll get over it eventually. So you like actually that. sought out the psychologist at, at the AFP? Yeah, I had right. to go through my debriefing anyway. Right. Um, when, when I was going through my debriefing, I mentioned that to the psych and I kind of dismissive and I thought, oh, well, that's okay. I'll, I'll get better of it. Uh, but then I, um, I, I'd started to um, – uh, I, again, I never thought I had any – form of psychological injury. I just thought that I was just getting old and cantankerous. But I started to rely on alcohol. And as I've already said, alcohol was never um, something that worked in our family. Um, and the reason I started to rely on alcohol and also, um, you know, over-the-counter drugs, because I wasn't sleeping, because I was starting to get, uh, I was having nightmares. And um, and I, I couldn't make sense of the nightmares. Um, but I, I just thought, you know, okay, I've been in a war zone. This is probably the same. Um, this is probably just what happens, um, and didn't didn't think much of it. But I started to drink more. I started to take um, uh, the over counter prescriptions, and that would numb me. Uh, I I pretty much became a hermit in my own house. I just didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to talk to anyone. Um, I uh, I started getting um, like twitches and things in in my hands and my feet, 
and um, I started having stomach problems and all these things were happening. I'm like, Jesus, why, why is this happening? And I couldn't work out. And I was seeing my GP and, and, you know, I was seeing about three or four specialists for all these things that were occurring and we, we couldn't work out what it was. Um, and I got to the stage where, and by this stage, I was, I was back at work working. I was the, um, the AFP commander for the three international airports in Queensland, so Gold Coast, Brisbane and Cairns. And it was around the G20 time and I was trying to keep, you know, functioning as best I could. Um, but I, I was, um, I was really, I disassociated from my family. I didn't, um, I, I wasn't involved in anything. I mean, you pretty, now that I look at it, it was pretty much textbook, you know, someone that's got PTSD, but I, I refused to accept it. I went to my doctor. He ended up putting me on, um, you know, medication to help me sleep and things. It didn't stop the, um, the nightmares, but at least I could go back to sleep after them. And then uh, I was at, I went up, I think it m may have been late 13 or early 14. I went and saw him and uh, and I walked in and I, he said, how are you going? I said, I'm, I'm not good. Uh, and he said, I think you've got um, post-traumatic stress. And I didn't want to hear that because I immediately thought, shit, my career's at end. You know, um, I'm this guy, this strong man guy. I have this persona, my family. You know, I'm going to let my family down, I'm, and it just went into a spiral. And I didn't hear the rest of the conversation, but he gave me a, a script that he said, "Look, these are antidepressants. You know, take these. They don't fix you, but they'll give you the space to to help." And then I I reluctantly took it. And I remember going home, and my wife said, "Oh, how'd you go?" And I said, "I think so. I've got PTSI, and I, I haven't." And he's given me this bloody prescription. If I if I take these, you know, I'll lose my security clearance. Uh, I'll they'll yank me out of work. No. So I went back, I made an appointment, went back the next day, handed that back to him and asked him to expunge the records, um, which, of course, I know now he, he dutifully typed back in as I left because he was a little Scotsman and I guess I was quite overbearing to him. Um, <laughs> he actually became a good friend of mine uh, over well, the years. One of the things that struck me is in that interview that I listened to is that you, there was one comment and you said that at one point the doctor said to you, I think you've had PTSD for a while yes yeah. and i then went well why the bloody hell hasn't he mentioned it to grant before mm. you know why is why has he let it go on mm. yeah i thought from a medical professional that was appalling anyway that was my two cents <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um I, I i spoke to um ron Ronnie's name was after that, and he said um, that the one thing as a medical practitioner you got to do is you got to pick your moment. Yeah. And he said with you there was never a moment. Um, he said because you were quite um, adamant that all these things were physical, and he said I tried to gently nudge you in that area, and he, he said I spoke to your wife, and you know we tried to develop a plan to get you to do that. But I now know that if you don't want to do that. If you don't want to acknowledge that, or for whatever reason, you won't do it. Grant, are you trying to tell me that you're a bit stubborn? Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just saw all the negatives, and, I, yeah. and see the one the one thing was Fiona. I was completely mentally health illiterate. I yeah. had no. I thought mental health was when we got called to the nutters or the crazies or the people that yeah. did that. And I I associated that behaviour with what they were trying to tell me. And I'm like, I'm nothing like that. I, I didn't know about anxiety. I now know that I've had anxiety since since I was in school or mm. earlier. Um, I didn't know about depression. I just thought, yeah, you know, we weren't trained on that. You're not trained yet. You're asked to go to 
to situations where people are, are um, you know, have severe, you know, mental breakdowns and you're, you're supposed to be able to know what to do. And back then we didn't know what to do. So I made that connection with that. And that's, that's probably what led to the stubbornness it was like, I am not that person. So don't tell me I've got a mental health issue. Yeah. And I had no idea. I thought PTSD, as it is back then, PTS was purely something that military guys had, those guys that are out there in the field doing the really horrible stuff, you know, killing people. I had no idea until I made myself literate, you know, how, how broad it is and how, how, um, how widely um, it occurs in all sorts of professions or daily life. Um, so that, that was where my stubbornness in that, in that perspective came from. Uh, and unfortunately, I, I went down a pathway of escalation and, um, you know, it got to the point where I actually had no, no self-worth at all. I, uh, I thought I was an absolute um, anchor to my family, um, that I was in buggerance to my organization, and um, there was nothing joyful or fun in life the way that my mind was at that time. So I made an attempt on my life, um, and um, it, was, uh, it was one of the worst things uh, you know, that you ever go through, and I, I didn't succeed. Um, I, you know, I've, I've failed many things in life. I'm glad I failed this one. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the positive spin out of it. But yeah. I never told anybody. In fact, it wasn't until the Australian story came out that my wife knew about it. Um, because I was, well, it's, it's funny how the human mind works. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I didn't succeed, but I was also embarrassed that you tried. Um, I tried mm. and that I couldn't bring myself to tell anybody. And that burden stayed with me for, you know, almost a, a year, a bit over a year beyond that. Why um, did you decide to mention it on the Australian Story episode then? We, we, I Initially, I didn't want to do the program because mm-hmm. they, 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 when we were talking about it, they, uh, they talked about, you know, having titling at the strong man. And I didn't, I made an incorrect assumption that they were going to focus on that as opposed to the other things and the and I said, look, I don't want – people often make the, the strongman things that we do. You know, they talk about you, you being freakish or you're weird or, you know, you're something out of a, a parallel universe. And I said, I didn't want that to happen and to be the focus as opposed to the mental health. And then they, they talked me through it and they, the producer said, no, 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 this is about your backstory. This is about the contradiction of you being a strongman but someone who, you know, almost successfully took their life. Um, but has a mental health issue, and we want to focus on that. And when when they tipped that around, I thought, well, you know, I'm happy to do that. And they said, you're familiar with the the way the Australian story is. And I said, yeah. And and uh, they said, we we really like people to be honest and upfront, you know, as best they can. And I mm-hmm. said, well, look, well, um, there's nothing nothing that I won't talk about. Um, everything's on the table. And then when I got home that day, I realised, oh, hang on a minute. That means I'm going to have to talk about this, and I. I, 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 I thought toyed. the episode was beautifully done. No, thank you. I thought it was as well. Yeah, um, and uh, I, I was, I was glad I went, I went through with it because um, probably wasn't the best way to um, let my wife know that that happened. <laughs> um, but it was probably in, in in hindsight a better way because you know by that stage you could see how I was, you know, on my on my journey to towards better mental health. I think if I had have told her the day that I did it, I probably would have ended up in a in a in a ward or in a hospital and that might have been the and I've had friends that have had that happen. That might have been the right way to go. You mm. know, there is no right way to deal with mental health because it's all personal. There's no one vanilla 
um, method of, of dealing with it. And this is what some people forget. You know, they just think that that's good. You've got a mental health. Well, we'll put you in hospital. We'll do this. We'll give you drugs. We'll do all that. That doesn't necessarily work um, for everyone. How long after you handed back that script to the doctor and asked him to expunge that record, did you make that attempt? Um, that would that was it was about almost six months later. It was in the middle of G twenty. Um, wow, in the middle of yeah. oh, I suppose all the stress. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so uh, it it was. I'm just thinking. Yeah, it would it would have been probably six, seven, seven, maybe even seven or eight months later. Yeah, um, I did that, and I was going down the pathway of of non-return. I mean, if I wasn't going to go by suicide, I was probably going to go by alcoholic poisoning or things like that because that was the only way. And, you know, as I got as I got better, my, my wife would um, start to tell me some of the things that she'd seen. And I, I have no recollection of some of the things that I was doing and wasn't doing. And, and this, is the, this is the problem um, because when you get into that stage mentally, you, you start to go into survivor mode. And that's the only thing that matters because you're really trying to keep those demons at bay and trying to suppress those things that, that, that are, you know, causing you problems in your head and you're doing everything just to, to get up and, you know, have a heartbeat and go to bed and get up again and have a heartbeat. And, and it's the hardest thing uh, to do. Um, well, it was one of the hardest things, you know, for me to do. And, um, and, I wasn't in a position to function at all. In fact, it got to the stage where my wife stopped me using power tools. Uh, there were days where I couldn't drive, because um, you know, for, because of a whole raft of reasons. And uh, and it's not so bad today, but there are still times where you know I still have problems and a, a little relapse. Not bad, but there are times where you know I don't drive, uh, and there are times where I just I don't go out. But I'm far better than where I am now. Uh, well, but what was the turning point for you to reach out and say, okay, yeah, I, I need – give me that script, yeah, doctor? Yeah. Uh, so that didn't happen until June 2015. Oh, well, that was a little earlier, probably about um, I think April 2015. So I, I'd i applied um, about a year earlier when I first got back from Afghanistan to go into the, the pool for um, the manager or commander role on our international Role, so I was hoping to get London, um, but I got, I got, um, I got Washington, and uh, I'd already, uh, I, I go to the uh, World Police and Fire Games whenever I can, and as it happened that year, they were in Washington D.C., and one of my good mates was already in that role, so I'd made arrangements well before I knew that I got the job to go over and stay with him and to go to the games, and um, and w- when I was over there. He was sort of talking me, me through because by that stage when I got there, um, I'd known that I had the job, so it worked out really well. And I remember, um, you know, listening to all the work and what was going on, and that you know, working across time zones, uh, you know, between US and Australia, and all the the things that you've got to do. And I just got overwhelmed, and, and I thought I can't do this. And I remember sitting down in the room in his two story house just laying there going, I, I can't do this job. I don't I don't have the physical energy. I could have the energy to, to compete, um, and that's what I put all my energy into because that was the only time where um, when I was training or competing that I never had any intrusive thoughts 
because you know that's 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 mindfulness at its greatest. I was in the moment because I was either physically training or I was doing something, and it was wonderful for me because that was my escape. But then after that, I, I would fall in a heap, and um, and I, I confided in him. I went to him one day and I said, "I don't think I can I can do this job, mate." And we're sitting in a coffee shop um, under the the bridge in Washington, D.C. And he, and he said, why? Well, you can do it. He said, you, you smash it. And I said, well, my doctor thinks I've got, you know, post-traumatic stress. And he was like, whoa, really? And we talked through that and how that happened. And, and he said, I would never have thought that. And he goes, wow. And I said, mate, I don't, want to, I don't want to be embarrassment. I don't want embarrassment to the country, to the job. I don't want to be embarrassment to my family or me. So I think it's better that I, that I pull out. And he said, well, hang on, let's, let's not make a, a rational decision. And he said, let's go, t- we'll talk to the boss, you know. So... We end up calling Australia, I think, the next day, and um, and uh, I end up speaking to Andrew Colvin, and uh, I'd made my mind up that my career was gone. So that I got to the stage where I knew I had to do something, otherwise I would make another attempt on my life, or I would just keep drinking. I'd end up divorced again, and you know, down a pathway I didn't want to go. And I, I'd, I'd come to terms with that. I'd, I'd made my made my happiness in that sense so I was fully expecting that nothing would happen and I spoke to Andrew and I'd known Andrew for years I'd worked with him and I told him and and his response was the same as David's it was like wow I I would you of all people would never have picked it did that Um, make it worse though for you that response no it didn't it actually as bizarre as it sounds it gave me some comfort because my my good friend who I was working in internal affairs with who went on to be the um the chief police officer of ACT, Adrie Fagan, she took her life at the age of 44. Mm. And I knew something was wrong, um, but I didn't know what was wrong. And, and we kept missing each other to to catch up. And then the day she took her life, I was coming in the elevator. She was going to the place that she was going. And we both pointed at each other and went coffee. And she goes, next week, Monday, we're on. Now, she would have known then that she had made that decision to take her own life. And she took it two days later. And I thought, wow, well, that's, you know, that's exactly what it's like. And those two incidents were it's what galvanized me to, to, you know, take a proactive role in mental health. But Andrew, Andrew said to me, he said, well, first of all, wow, you know, thanks for being so honest. He said, I'm, I'd much rather know that someone's suffering uh, um, overseas uh, than that they were hiding it because I wouldn't know what I didn't know. And he said, are, "Are you are you seeking treatment?" And I said, "It's it's starting when I get back to Australia um, on Monday." He said, w- "Will you take medication?" And I said, "Absolutely." And, and he said, "If, if uh, w- will you see somebody?" Uh, and I said, "Yes, I've already booked in to see a psychologist." And he said, "Will you do that if if you go to the states?" And I said, "Oh, absolutely." And he said, "Well, I don't have a problem with that." I said, "If we can be," he said, oh, "We can be a part of that. We can make sure you get your treatment." He said, "I know what you like. You can do that job." And I was, it knocked me because I didn't expect that response. Well, you were expecting security clearance to be yanked. Yeah, everything. Yeah. You know, and, and I'd either be on leave or I'd be put into a role, a meaningless role, you know, until I was age, age retired. And I, I, I was honestly gobsmacked. And, and that, was the, that was the real pivotal moment because his words, because I'd already told my wife and we were making plans not to go and and he's like I, I want you to go he said you don't have to go on the time that we've stated when you're ready he yeah. said but um i, I want to make sure and i want to make sure that we got our our medical practices in place to look after you and i'm like what a wonderful Shit. response it was and you know and i tell andrew 
to this day that it was that was his response that that has put me where I am today. Yeah. Um, and um, and I did go over and it was bloody hard and it was tough, but I loved every moment of it. And I retired on the back of it because I thought there's no other job that I could do that's going to match this. What are you doing now? Because you're very – you've written a book, Strongman, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're very oh, – goodness, you sent me through – the lists of what you're on and your <laughs> board this, ambassador this, chief this, and lordy, you know, you couldn't have got somebody to, to for me to be interviewed that's on any more awards or so well uh, respected. But what's, I know you've got Soldier On and um, so much in terms of the PTS side yeah. of things. Is that sort of your focus now? It is because, um, like I said to you earlier, once I went on my own um, uh, literacy, um, a mental health literacy journey and started to read about it because I now know that you as an individual, when you're injured, you've got to take ownership of it. Mm. And and I get why people don't because they blame an organisation, they blame an incident, they blame whatever. And that's that's fine. But if you sit around and wait, uh, you know, chances are you won't get the treatment you need. You've got to just suck it up and go, you know what? Yeah, sure, that's what's happened to me, but I'm in this situation. I need to get help. And that's 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 the kind of message that I want to get out. And I've seen uh, across the board how many people are struggling. I had no idea of the prevalence of of PTSI, let alone the prevalence of, of the other, uh, you know, major health conditions uh, that, that are occurring in Australia, let alone across the world. And there are a lot of people out there doing um, great stuff, and and I wanted to, to to focus very much on the law enforcement, you know, brothers and sisters and family, because I, I still think that they they've been left behind um, more broadly. It's interesting that you say that. I interviewed a gentleman, David McGowan, who is an ex um, Victorian copper, and he is now the CEO of the Veterans for Victoria Police, because mm-hmm. there wasn't anything set up for retired police officers for um, Mm -hmm. mental health support. And they are trying to roll it out around the country. Apparently all the states don't have anything for retired police veterans. Is there anything for um, the AFP? Um, At at this stage, it's only what, um, you know, good Samaritans have set up. The organisation has recognised that. And uh, under Rhys Kershaw now, um, the government gave the AFP – about $60 million a couple of years ago in the last budget to um, provide support for wellness. Mm. Uh, so developing that wellness and a fair part of that is mental health. Um, I don't know how, even though I'm on the advisory board, I don't know how that's traveling um, at the moment. But look, it's it's a step in the in the right place. Uh, but there are still people being, being injured psychologically over and over and over. And, you know, you think of the work that the AFP does. There are a lot of people injured during the um, Boxing Day tsunamis. Um, there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of people that were um, injured with the Bali bombings and things like that. And it continues over and over and over. And when you don't have that support and you don't, you don't trust, and that's the biggest thing with law enforcement, you know, we trust no one because we're taught to. So we don't even trust our own organisation. Well, uh, I think it's also, the, as you said, the fear of being booted. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a, the stigma is overwhelming. I try not to use the word stigma anymore. I I try to use a more positive word. Say, like we need to normalise, you know, um, yeah. 
and and by normalising it, like if you came to work with a cast on your leg, everyone would know you had a broken leg. Yeah, sit down. Can I get you a cup of tea? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I sign your cast? When you come in with a psychological injury, no one can tell. You don't walk in the room and go, hey, guys, i got PTSI. You don't do that. Yeah. You know? And if you did, people would go, oh, shit, you know. I don't know how to interact with you. I don't you. know how to handle that. Yeah. You know? yeah. Is, is he one of those crazies, you know, and we withdraw. And so for me, so and I'm, I'm writing, uh, I've got a couple of books in the pipeline now uh, because I've actually found that writing is quite cathartic for me. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, they wanted me to try knitting once and I'm like, <laughs> I said, you've seen my hands. I said, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll make a tarpaulin or something, but it'd be a <laughs> no. Um, but anything that's repetitive is great for the brain, and that's why I took up running um, to do that. So but, no um, art therapy for you, just the writing. I, I did art therapy. I did equine yeah. therapy when I did my program. Um, it blew me away um, yeah. how much people can can draw out of that that can relate back to your your situation. But I, I really just want to be in the space now where um, you know I can help and, and advocate because now that I'm no longer part of the government machine, I can advocate more mm. more rigidly without the the constraints of, you know, being in uh, you know, having a being a senior member of the AFP, but also being in, inside <laughs> a government. And I'll I'll do that quite whenever I can now. So I'm not afraid to to speak my mind. And you've also got the contacts as well and the clout yeah. to yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I still do a lot of work with with my great colleagues in the UK, the US, and Canada, and places like that. Um, I'm working with RMIT at the moment, working with them with a program jointly funded by by the federal government uh, for the well being of uh, men and women across law enforcement in the Pacific and Southeast Asia. Uh, so you know, there's a lot of cultural issues there to overcome with that. But the point is is that um, we we need to go more with mental health just than an are you okay day or things it needs to be every day we need mm. to be working on it because when you well when you look at the world health health organization and, th and this was published prior to COVID, where they stated that by 2030 that um, the mental health will be the most debilitating um physical um uh, physical illness mm. in the world that's not f and that was before COVID. Mm. Uh, and depression will be the most significant and you know we 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 never we we dance around the elephant in the room, and for me now I see more damage that is that is done by organisational injustice yeah. than I do than I do by trauma. You know, you join the cops, you know you're gonna you know you're gonna see traumatic experience traumatic, and yes, we need something in place for that. But when you join the police, you don't or, or law enforcement or any job, you know you don't need those pervasive. Um, negatives that are in the workplace. So everything from bullying to discrimination to, you know, um, sexual touching to um, all that kind of stuff to, mm. to, to, to morally wrong decisions, all, all those kind of things. And so many people I talk to now, that's where, that's what opens up the can of worms for them. Mm. You know, they've been to places like I've been and they can cope with it. But then when you put that on top of it, and my pet my pet peeve is the adversarial insurance agencies. We don't have a, vet, a veteran's card. We don't have access. We've got to actually prove our injury. And it's like going through an embuggerance of a court case. And it gets to the stage where you're just victimised time and time again. You're having to retell your story. You're having to get you know checked up. People don't trust you. And it takes for ages. So you're asking people to fund their own their own health and their own care for up to two or three years beyond before a decision's made that they get that. Most people don't have. I took a loan out initially to get mine. You know, I took a thirty thousand dollar loan so that I could do my treatment. You know, I was lucky that I end up 
I end up getting that repaid to me. But I was prepared to do that. I had the ability to do that. A lot of others don't. And it was it was it was driven home to me by many who said, "Well, that's all right for you, sir. You know, you've got the ability to do that, but you've also got people in high places that look after you." And I couldn't disagree with that. Mm. You know, they said we're just at the bottom of the tank. You know, I can't afford five thousand dollars to go and get myself sorted. And there, there are some great places around that do things for free, but they're so full. You know, they've got waiting lists. There's just there's not enough there. And the the, the thing that that um, really bugs me is when police are compared to military. You know, my, my military friends, I, I respect with the utmost amount of respect for what they do. Mm. But when they go into places of conflict or places of high, heavy stress, they go in for short periods. Then they come out and they get time to train, rest, reconnect, do all that. In the police, you know, I, I spoke to one officer where in one day he'd been to um, – a suicide of a young teenager who'd hung himself. Um, he'd been to um, a, a call where it would appear that a child had been abused, and he'd, he'd been to a um, he'd been to a fatal car crash in one day. Mm. Next day, he's got to come back and do it all again. Mm. You know, you don't get the time. You can take your own leave. You've got so much medical leave. It's not much. It's there, but you, you know, you take all that up. You've, you've you've lost everything, and that's the difference between police so all those cortisol levels and, and all the all the the um, adrenal fatigue yep and neurotransmitters and all those things they just get they eventually just get completely worn out mm. and we get you know we expect people to work 30 35 years in in that role um it, it's tough and yeah the government you know the federal government has done some good things in regard to that um but money's not necessarily um, the panacea for it all. See, for me, I want to see organisations start to embrace this. Actually, rather than give it lip service, actually embrace it. And what, there are some that are doing it, um, but there are a lot that aren't. What do you think the solution is? Do you think that there should be a mandatory uh, initially to sort of stop the stigma? Do you think it should be a mandatory um, psych appointment every week or every month like within the forces like what do you think is the solution to help normalize the mental health yeah i don't think the 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 psych um the um forcing people before a psych is a good thing because i know myself and i know psychs will disagree with me on this and they hate when i say it but you can manipulate the tests and tick and And, flick say what they want to hear and 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 we all did it you know we all we would all talk to one another and you know say how you get through it and really the organizations were happy for that because there's, there's no, it's, it's kind of obfuscates their responsibility. Well, yeah, you know, he was fine. It wasn't work that caused the problem, and that's what the insurance agencies will come to, eventually, to say that. I, I my, my, you know, if if I had the preferred option, it's, it's, you've got to normalise it. So it's like you would do, uh, so using the in the police parlance. So it would be something that's in the mission statement. Something that occurs in in, um, in in the core values, something that occurs in the every day to day work. So, for instance, when you go and do a search warrant, you've got to fill out a component about risk. You've got to fill out a component about uh, potential physical health to people on there. There's nothing about mental health exposure. Um, so, by doing that, by putting it in, um, normal, normalising in the workforce, so uh, everyone has a responsibility for their own mental health. Mm. The organisation has a responsibility for that, so they're given um, time and training, uh, even you know mandatory first aid, mental health first aid training. But 
you know, learning how to deal coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms, and it becomes open and people get to can talk about it. So, you know, I've gone back to some police agencies and I, I've spoken about it. And I said, the more people that are comfortable talking about their own lived experience, the more that will normalize it, the more that will, will get people involved. And we've, we, uh, overall, the first and foremost thing that ought to be done is have presumptive legislation brought in, like there is in many other countries and some states in Australia, but presumptive across the mental health, not just presumptive for PTSI, presumptive for mental health conditions. So that if, you, if you're if you diagnosed by a GP or whoever that you've got a mental health issue, that that opens the door straight away you don't, before you go to the insurer or go to whoever. And then the processes in the background take place while you're trying to get health. But everyone's, everyone's fearful of the minority who will take advantage of that. Sure, people will take advantage of it. It's human nature. That's what happens. Um, but I would much rather see the focus on the 95% of people that genuinely need it rather than, than gearing everything towards the 5% of people that, that don't need it, that are you know probably oxygen thieves or escapees from the workforce. They'll get found out down the track. We've just got to be open and honest. We've got to build trust. There's no trust. You know, every there's the us and them in the in in the law enforcement world. There's the workers, and then there's the executive, and mm. you know, there's two different worlds. But what people forget is most of those executives have been where they were, and they've got their own issues. Um, and it's even worse for them to try and come out and say that the greatest thing that I ever saw was with, with Graham Ashton. You know, and I knew Graham from his time in the AOP. When Graham came out and said, "I need to take mental health days because I'm suffering," there's no stronger message to an organisation to say, "If I'm doing it." Well, then you can do it too. I was actually yeah. going to ask. So, with the with the lower level, um, sort of you know, equivalent of boots on the ground, not so much the exec levels. If they don't have the money to seek the treatment themselves, and they are scared about losing their job, what what advice would you give somebody that's suffering from PTSI? Uh, I I would say I would go back to my situation where I came to terms that I thought I was going to lose my job um, because. You know, there's, again, there's no one size fits all. Mm. The important thing is, is that as an individual, we're only in control of very limited things in our life, and one of them is us, who we are. Yeah, take control of who you are. As hard as it is when you're going, you know, through those situations, um, you know, make make a little list or, or make a a, a um, um, make a promise to yourself that you're going to seek your help. You're going to start to get things done where you can. You may not be able to do a program, but you might be able to get involved with, you know, one of the support groups or, you know, there's, there's Fordham Australia, there's Soldier Ron. So there are groups that you can go and see, but some folks don't even trust them um, because they just can't bring themselves to, to talk about it. Um, you need to talk to your family about it because it's crucial because really it, it can come down to a life and death situation. I mean, if you contracted cancer, um, and I know that there are a minority that do it, but would you not go to your work and say, I've got cancer, mm. um, I need to take time to get better, and you know that that might impact on your job? You know you won't potentially won't lose it, but it's going to impact on what you do. You need to have the same mindset with mental health because if, if you can't get yourself fixed, no one can do it for you. That's the greatest lesson I learned with my mother when I was trying to force her to go to AA and I was tipping all the alcohol down the drain. Uh, I was lucky that I that I went to a non-for-profit and the two psychs there said, you've got to stop doing that. And I said, but if I stop doing it, she'll die. And they said, well, that's her choice. 
you can't be held responsible for that. And that was the hardest thing to do. And I watched her decline. I stopped removing her alcohol. I, I stopped t forcing her to AA and I just watched her degrade over years and years and years. And to, to feel that sense of hopelessness, that's that's a hard thing to – and when they die, it's like, well, I would have, should have, could have, but um, I couldn't mm. because if you can't make the person themselves want to do it, you won't make them. It's horse to water, isn't it? Can't make it them is. drink. Yeah. 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 Grant, I said 90 minutes and we've been going for over two hours. <laughs> well, we can, come, we can come back again if you've got other things. <laughs> no, I'm just very conscious of your time. Yeah. Um, Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll link, no, my pleasure. Thank you. I'll link your books um, as well in the um, Thank you. show notes for the episode. And when you when your other ones are published, let me know. I will. And yeah. I'll promote them yeah. as well. Yep. And, and I'm happy to come on again at a later stage if you've got more to do. So um, the, the, the more this gets out there, the better. So yeah. I, I just want to keep getting that message out there that it's okay not to be okay. Thanks, Grant. Yeah. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.